What do you have today, Jeremy? Uh, Tennessee three and getting rid of Clarence Thomas. Tennessee three. Is that like the sequel to the sequel? Was there Tennessee one and two? <laughs> what is it? What's the Tennessee three? The Tennessee three are the uh, nice young boys and woman, older woman who were expelled. The woman wasn't. She was white, expelled from the Tennessee State House. They were legislators. Ah, all right. Well, I have a push. A, there's I, a push to uh, get rid of Clarence Thomas. Oh, you have something on Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas? This, I haven't heard Supreme anything Court. about Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Well, you've been worried about the indictment. <laughs> Distracted. No, I've been buried in what I have, which is a very in-depth update on Cold War Three. You ready? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, people, let's begin. Get up, everybody. We have liftoff. Welcome to the Truth Bait Podcast. With me always is Jeremy Siegel, Rebel Pundit. Jeremy Siegel, I'm Andrew Marcus. And uh, together... We are bringing you episode 14 of the Truth Bait Podcast. Jeremy, I'm giving you applause and the podcast again. Thank you. Thank you. Are you standing or sitting? Now, today I am standing. Uh, Jeremy, I have so much today. I can't even believe it. I, I'm, I'm worried about how date? long we're going to go today, Did you say the date? Did you say the date? What's that? Did you say the date? We don't need the date. This okay. is timeless. I've decided I don't think we need the date or the episode anymore because why does it matter? These well, are evergreen and they're dated in the distribution. That's true. But if someone's, you know, if we make it big someday and they put it on the radio, you want it there. But isn't that when we don't want it there? They're all timeless. Yeah. All right, I just want to make sure because the last time you said it was a big mistake. I know it was a big mistake, and so then I've decided to give up on it. I was trying to save you. Okay, well, listen, you're, you and I are co-hosting the Truth Bait podcast where we deconstruct America's propaganda war and reconstruct America's cultural narrative in our image. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jeremy and I are... Like I said, we are filmmakers. He and I have been documenting on the streets around the nation, around the world. Actually, we've been to we've been to what is now China. It was Hong Kong at the time. It's now China, uh, and uh, we're able to bring insight and knowledge and a perspective on uh, on world events and the narrative narratives around us. And that is what we are doing here at the Truth Bait Podcast. We hope to. Well, we hope we are. If you're listening, then hopefully you agree. Yeah. Like I said, Jeremy, I'm a little bit worried about today being long because, you know, sometimes I fall into a rabbit hole and I fell into a massive rabbit hole, but it is one of the most consequential rabbit holes. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been talking a lot about China and uh, you and I have both been talking about how 
uh, you know, the Trump indictment is, while consequential, is also a giant distraction. And I just decided, okay, well, everybody's focusing on the Trump indictment. Uh, I'm going to go take a look at what is happening that, that everybody is not paying attention to. And there is just a tremendous amount happening that I think most people are probably distracted to. Did you hear about the president of Taiwan coming to the United States, traveling to the United States, and meeting with uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? No. Oh! Okay, either... I heard about Nancy Pelosi going to talk to him last year. That happened last year, and that very much upset the Chinese which we're going to get into why that upsets the Chinese so much. I'm going to give some background information today. I want to try and give context for people to understand the history of how we have arrived at this moment, because that way you'll understand where this is going and, and understand what is animating China, whether we agree with China or not, whether you think China is just a bunch of commies and they're, uh, uh, they abuse people's rights, you know, who cares what they think? You have to care what they think because you have to know what it is that's animating them so you know what you're up against. And we are up against it. Uh, so, the president of Taiwan, who Nancy Pelosi had met with, came through. She's done. She's now doing a world tour, uh, and has uh, well, regional tour. Uh, came up through South America and Central America. And now is in California. I don't know exactly where she stopped south of California. I didn't really pay attention until she got to California. <laughs> uh, but she's meeting with Kevin McCarthy, or met with Kevin McCarthy, and they met at the Reagan Ranch which is quite symbolic to do because Reagan, what's Reagan known for? What's one of the main things Reagan is known for? I guess he was a peacemaker. <laughs> well, for those of us who are... Ending the Cold War. Yeah, okay, that's, thank you. That's what I was getting at. Ending the Cold well, War. Well, cause, because that's a... Because, that was a rumor. He defeated the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Is it going out on a limb or a whim? Limb. I don't know. You went out on okay. a limb. Then I was right. I'm uh, going out on a limb here. You are safe there. He defeated. And I'm gonna say that Ronald Reagan did not end the Cold War. Well, for I sorry think that, for all of the Ronald Reagan fans out there, and I like Ronald Reagan. I, I he was the Are you making the larger argument that the Cold War never ended? That we were tricked. Yes. Okay, that's okay. You're, you, there's a good argument to be made for that, but that is a different argument. I'm just than, that's why I said why I said what I said. Uh, okay. All right. Duly noted. Thank you. So, <laughs> so, um. The trip to the trip from the Thai from the excuse, from the Taiwanese president to the United States to meet with Kevin McCarthy at this symbolic location, which is not lost on the CCP, that Ronald Reagan defeated the Soviet Union. And actually, let's let's be let's make let's take a moment to make a distinction here. 
Ronald Reagan, and you're going to hear this in one of the clips, Ronald Reagan, his tact was not to get along with the Soviet Union, which was generally Carter's tact, was to get along with the Soviet Union, you know, find a way to live with them. We don't need to be confrontational. Ronald Reagan came in and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're going to win this Cold War. We're not going to just live with this Cold War. And China's looking at that. They know we're entering into a Cold War with them, and having this event at Reagan's ranch says something to them, that we're not on a coexistence path with them. We're on a defeating them path. That's the message that they receive. So anyway, if you want to understand China and their view of the relationship with the United States. Uh, Jeremy, what do you know about the three communiques? Have you ever heard of the three communiques? No. Ah, you know what? Neither had I. And that's a testament to our educations or lack thereof, which by the way, I'm going to take uh, or incidentally, I'm going to take some responsibility for my lack of education. It wasn't all just the uh, just whatever series of poor teachers I might have had. I definitely had my own hand in in having a lack of education. Too much not paying attention. Too much goofing around. So I don't. My wanna... lack of education was because of institutional racism. <laughs> you, you were too busy being institutionally racist <laughs> to be educated. No, I, I, I was. I was being discriminated against. <laughs> For which part of you? You you you're you were part Jewish, right? My white my whiteness. Ah. Uh, okay. My whiteness. I don't think I don't think whiteness was discriminated against until many years it, later. It was. It's the reason why they dumbed down my education. Where did you go to school? Was it a public school? I did go to government school in Highland Park, Illinois, home mm. of the Fourth uh, of July shooting massacre. Well, last I, summer. I'm sure Highland Park is home of a lot more things that are more <laughs> more positive than that. <laughs> but they didn't teach you about the the three communiques, the three joint communiques that are that form the basis, the bedrock of our relationship with China. And uh, I'm gonna. I, I, this is gonna be. It's gonna be a little bit before we get to some clips. Because I think that in order to understand what is going on right now, you have to understand this first. We need to give people and ourselves a bit of an education on the three communiques and what they mean. So one of the best ways I think to, to get into this was actually how I really tripped upon this as I'm researching, you know, when you start looking at clips it's like going on a ride. You see, you find a clip that that piques your interest, and you and it and something in it. You want to follow up on something in it. You follow up on it, and then you follow up on that, and then you follow up on that. And the next thing you know, like I said, you're down the rabbit hole. But this was an article that I found that really sent me down down the hole. It is for, written by Franz Gale at uh, the. Global Times, which is uh, paid for, uh, which is operated uh, or controlled by the CCP. So it's propaganda like our news. 
how the U.S. betrayed three joint communiques with China over Taiwan question. And again, I would just like to advise them to stop calling it the Taiwan question. <laughs> because <laughs> this is what the Nazis did. They called it the Jewish question, and the answer was liquidation. It's just, they may not know what they're doing because there's a language barrier, but it's a bad look, China. I don't know. I guess they know what they're doing. <laughs> so, this article was written in 2021. So, it's now, it's, it's, we're a couple years beyond where this is being articulated. And I'm going to read some of this. In 1949, the Republic of China was exiled to Taiwan Island, pausing China's civil war. As our ideologically aligned Chinese ally, ally, and, ally, uh, and I needed to say, so it's written for this Chinese propaganda outfit, but it is written what appears to be by an American written from the perspective of her as an American. So even though it's in a Chinese outlet, she's not speaking about it from the perspective of somebody who's in China. In 1949, the Republic of China was exiled to Taiwan Island, pausing China's civil war. As our ideologically aligned Chinese ally, we stood by the ROC, that's the Republic of China, in anticipation of the nationalists someday defeating and replacing newly founded PRC, the newly founded PRC, the People's Republic of China. The dispute was a contest for rulership of all one China. The Nationalist uh, Republic of China was intent on reunifying the mainland with the island under a Western governance model and eradicating communism. At the time, the ROC occupied the United Nations China seat. And in 1955, the U.S. and the ROC entered the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty, stationing American forces abroad on Taiwan Island. But in 1971, the UN voted to eject the ROC from the China seat that, was, that it was filling and welcomed the PRC to fill the China seat as the only legitimate government of China. The UN has never recognized the ROC or Taiwan Island as anything other than a politically alienated Chinese population aboard Chinese sovereign territory. The U.S. is a signatory to the U.N. Charter. President Nixon and his advisor, Dr. Henry Kissinger, recognized the new global realities and commenced the U.S. outreach to the PRC, which culminated in the president's historic visit with Mao Zedong in the, in the People's Republic of China. Three joint communiques later emerged from ensuing bilateral negotiations between the U.S. and China. The wording and specific interpretation of each agreement was uh, was agreed upon by the U.S. and PRC in good faith in advance of each publication. They are cherished by the Chinese as authoritative foundations of our country's diplomatic re, uh, relations. The first joint communique was published in 1972 during the Nixon presidency. The Chinese reaffirmed that the Taiwan question is the crucial question obstructing the normalization of relations between China and the U.S., that the PRC is the sole legitimate government of China and Taiwan is a province of China, and that the uh, Republic of China, 
the island territory and reunification were China's internal affair. The second joint communique was negotiated and published in 1978 during the Carter presidency. In it, the PRC and the U.S. agreed to establish formal diplomatic relations. The U.S. again acknowledged the Chinese position that there is only one China and Taiwan is part of China, and also affirmed the PRC is the legitimate government of China. The U.S. agreed to limit its ROC affiliation to informal cultural and commercial relations. Both countries revalidated the first joint communique. Currently, the president rescinded the concurrently the president rescinded the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty with the Republic of China. But the China lobby in the U.S. was determined to tie the U.S. to the Republic of China's fate. The U.S. Senate challenged the president's unilateral actions. However, the Supreme Court upheld them. Dissatisfied with the ruling, both houses of Congress passed the Taiwanese Relation Act, Relations Act, the TRA. As a public law, the TRA directed weapons sales to the Republic of China for self-defense and maintenance of a, US, of a U.S. capacity to militarily intervene in the island's defense. Although the TRA torpedoed the intent of the 1972 and 78 communiques, President Carter signed it into law in 1979. So you can begin to see some context here of what builds up this confrontation between the United States and China regarding Taiwan. The third joint communique was negotiated and published in 1982 during the Reagan presidency. It was intended to address and alleviate PRC concerns over TRA-enabled weapons sales to the ROC. That's a lot of acronyms. <laughs> to alleviate PRC concerns over TRA-enabled weapons sales to the ROC. So the people of Repu People's Republic of China was concerned about... Weapon sales from the Taiwan Relations Act. Relations Act to the Republic, the Republic of, China. of China government. Correct. Okay. And in it, in this third communique, they reaffirmed the first and second communiques. Now, as this article says, unbeknownst to the PRC, later in 1982, the U.S. State Department and President confidentially communicated policy interpretation of the final communique that contradicted the agreed language. The guidance was unilaterally developed internally to reassure the Republic of China and disseminated exclusively to the ruling uh, Kuomintang KMT without PRC knowledge. And again, I probably should have just made clear the Republic of China, that is when, they, when it's referred to the Republic of China, that's Taiwan. So, I think that that, because it comes from their media, it's clearly their bias, which I intentionally want you to hear their bias. This is... So their bias is basically that we had agreements that Taiwan is theirs. That is correct. Uh, and really what they, what, they, what they have a problem with is that we are, they think we betrayed the agreement 
they believed that in the agreement, we were going to draw down our arms sales to Taiwan. And in fact, in the, in the communique, we do say we're going to draw down our arms sales to Taiwan. And, uh, but it, it appears to me in the communiques that that's really tied to uh, China's behavior as well. And that we weren't going to just let China roll over Taiwan. Although in all the communiques, we are explicit that there is one China. The CCP is the only leadership of China and Taiwan is part of China. We have repeatedly uh, reaffirmed that over and over and over again. So imagine how betrayed they feel that we then uh, passed a law that was uh, guaranteeing arms sales to Taiwan. But the other the other thing that is, that is in these communiques, and we're going to go through some of the communiques. We're not going to read all of the communiques, but I'm going to read some of it because, again, you have to know, and I'm going to lay out the timeline of how this how this really happened. Uh, they're really upset that we worked out these six points with Taiwan without being in cult- consult, uh, consultation with the CCP. Because after all, if we have repeatedly reaffirmed that there is one government, it is the CCP, there is one China, Taiwan is a part of China, what are we doing negotiating anything without their involvement? is a logical thing for them to be asking. It, to them, is one of the cruxes of, 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 of our betrayal to them, as they see it. And I have to wonder, if we don't... Re- and also, in, this, in the communiques is where we establish our diplomatic relationship with the CCP, the, well, the PRC, and end our diplomatic relationship with the Republic of China. So who are we even negotiating anything with there? I, I, I'm confused where we, we, don't, we don't have diplomatic relationship with Taiwan, not formally, not like we do with China, which because Taiwan, according to our agreement in these communiques, is China. Now, I think the American audience, because we're not generally terribly well-educated, I'll speak for myself first. It, you can speak for me next. <laughs> well, I'll let you hop in. <laughs> uh, thinks of Taiwan really just as its own country. And, you know, the American spirit calls on you to, to feel that way, doesn't it? They want to live independently outside of communism, I want to support that. Uh, You know, they seem to be a different country. They present themselves to us as a country separate from China. I never really grew up feeling like, oh yeah, Taiwan's definitely part of China. Now, I never spent a lot of time there, but again, I'm a Marocentric, I suppose. It says Taiwan right on, uh, I don't know if it's Wikipedia. Yeah, officially the Republic of China. That's correct. I never heard that. I didn't have to go digging very far for all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's like a quick duck, duck, 
goal search. <laughs> so let me read. I'm just going to read through a little bit of the communiques. We're going to get onto clips because once we're done reading through this, you're going to have, you're going to be armed for a better understanding of the clips that I'm going to play and wider, the wider events that are unfolding, have been unfolding. And I f- have a feeling that the events that are going to unfold, are going to make everything to date seem like, what is it? What do they say? Uh, history is prologue history. What is that? Uh, it's going to make everything seem like prologue to the coming events. Did that make any know. sense? Were you listening? I don't know what you're getting at there. No, I'm confused. Uh, well, we are. We have been living through very tumultuous times. There is there are are dramatic changes occurring all around us, and I think we ain't seen nothing yet. But the three communiques. The first communique. Uh, was agreed to on February 28th, 1972. So you're talking about, what, 50 years ago? 51? (laughs) 51. I did the math real quick there. I had to get on ChatGPT and and ask. (laughs) And that's when it told me 51, because ChatGPT lies. Did you use ChatGPT to (laughs) write this whole opening? (laughs) (laughs) No, because I tried, but everything it returned was over my head. So I, had, <laughs> I had to write it myself. So the three communiques, the first one's on February 28, 1972. The Chinese side stated, wherever there is oppression, there is resistance. Countries want independence. Nations want liberation. And the people want revolution. This has become the irresistible trend of history. All nations, big or small, should be equal. Big nations should not bully the small, and strong nations should not bully the weak. China will never be a superpower, and it opposes hegemony and power politics of any kind. Okay, so China will never be a superpower. (laughs) Who said that? The Chinese side. This is... the, the the PRC side? That is correct. That is correct. The PRC. So the, the PRC is the communist. Right. Uh, and, and at the time, they're, they're very weak. They're uh, uh, an agrarian society, right? Uh-huh. They are uh, peasants, largely. So, yeah, they're saying, hey, don't come beat us up. <laughs> you know, we're not, right. we're not defenseless. We're not, you know. Uh, but that that's you know that that's their position was from the smaller party the weaker party but let's take them at their word that they didn't want to become a superpower because i think that there is reason to believe that they that they didn't intend to get into this conflict with us because you can chart out on the timeline pretty much when it might have begun. Ladies and gentlemen, our new sponsor is the People's Republic of China. In case you haven't <laughs> heard, we have been taken over. And Andrew Marcus is now a spokesman <laughs> for right. the People's Republic of China. <laughs> Go China. Go China. Okay, let's get back into it. I'm trying to think of Chinese products I could endorse, <laughs> and it's pretty much everything. <laughs> So I could I could endorse Apple. I could endorse. Uh, so 
The Chinese side stated that it firmly supports the struggles of all oppressed people and nations for freedom and liberation, and that the people of all countries have the right to choose their social systems according to their wishes, and the right to safeguard the independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity of their own countries, and oppose foreign aggression, interference, control, and subversion. Now, Again, they're doing all of those things to us. We know that. But what are they speaking to here? In, in my read, they're talking about Taiwan. They are not terribly long off their civil war. Taiwan's sitting right off the coast. It's occupied by the losers of that war, as far as the CCP is concerned. And they want that island. Think about it from their perspective. They're like, hey, we, we, we could have just come and slaughtered you right there. We didn't. We, we all took a break. I don't think they anticipated that somebody bigger was going to come defend them. And so this is what they're trying to assert. And if you think about it, it's kind of crazy. Communists who, you know, the communists in our country are constantly looking to erase borders. These communists were looking to reinforce nationalism because they wanted their borders recognized so that they could resolve the Taiwan issue as an internal matter. That was, it is clear when you read these three communiques, that's all they're concerned with. That is all they care about. They want to be able to go in and take Taiwan. And they want America to, to butt out. In the first communique, the U.S. side stated... Peace in Asia and peace in the world requires efforts both to reduce immediate tensions and to eliminate the basic causes of conflict. The United States will work for a just and secure peace, just because it fulfills the aspirations of peoples and nations for freedom and progress, secure because it removes the danger of foreign aggression. The United States supports individual freedom and social progress for all the peoples of the world, free of outside pressure or intervention. Now, in that statement, you can see the United States is defending its desire, it's, it's establishing its, its line in the sand, essentially, for defending freedom, for defending Taiwan. Uh, removes danger... Uh, for for just and secure peace. They talk about secure. Secure because it removes the danger of foreign aggression. Well, what they're talking about is arming them, making them secure so that the Chinese don't aggress towards the island. Now, but from that perspective, we're talking out of both sides of our face because how is it that we could have that perspective? We can, you can't consider the Chinese mainland foreign, foreign aggression. It would be the continuation of a civil war, not foreign aggression, unless you're recognizing Taiwan as its own country. The, the United States supports individual free. Oh, yeah. Let's see. No country, this is the United States continuing, no country should claim infallibility, and each country should be prepared to re-examine its own attitudes for the common good. The United States stressed that the peoples of Indochina should be allowed to determine their destiny without outside intervention. And again, in this, the Chinese, they don't consider themselves to be outside intervention. 
they consider the United States to be outside intervention. Mm -hmm. The United States will maintain its close ties and support with the Republic of Korea. The United States will support efforts of the Republic of Korea to seek relaxation of tension and increased communication in the Korean Peninsula. The United States places the highest value on its friendly relations with Japan. It will continue to develop the existing close bonds consistent with the United Nations Security Council Resolution uh, of December 21st, 1971. The United States supports the right of peoples of South Asia to shape their own future in peace, free of military threat, and without having the area become the subject of great power rivalry. There are essential differences between China and the United States in their social systems and foreign policies. However, the two sides agreed that the countries, regardless of their social systems, would conduct their relations on the principles of respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states. Non-aggression against other states, non-interference in the internal affairs of other states, equality and mutual benefit and peaceful coexistence, international disputes should be settled on this basis without resorting to the use of threat or force. So this is in the first communique. With these principles of international relationships in mind, the two sides stated that progress towards the normalization of relations between China and the United States is in the interests of all countries. Neither should seek hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region, and each is opposed by efforts by any other country or group of countries to establish such, such hegemony. Well, that's another area that the Chinese have a major problem and that is the Australia UK US defense pact and the US India Japan Australia quadrilateral security dialogue the quad which i think came into being under trump our agreements with other states to establish US and allied regional hegemony by encircling and containing China's rise. That is coming again from Franz Gale in the Global Times. It's the TRA, the Secret of Six Assurances, and internal presidential guidance, not the communiques that constitute the sole U.S. policy on Taiwan Island. That's what she says. And that is... that that is, They feel betrayed. And you can see it all set up for the betrayal in this first communique. How you doing? Are you hanging with me? So they just want to be left alone, the PRC, and own China, which we are own, own the Republic of China, Taiwan, which we agreed to in the communique. But then we have these other pacts and agreements that are eroding that agreement, basically. Right. And I don't know how much they want to be left alone, but they demand sovereignty. Well, and so do we. Right. And we, it would be one thing if we had been disputing all this time whether or not Taiwan was part of China, but we're not. From the very get-go, we're agreeing. Here is the, the second communique, which is December 15th, 1978. So you're talking about six years later almost seven years later. And I have a clip of Jimmy Carter reading this. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other 
and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. The United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. The government of the United States of America acknowledges the Chinese position that there is but one China, and Taiwan is part of China. Seems pretty clear. Yeah. That was in the reading of the release of the second communique, December 15th, 1978. He really soft-sold it to the American people there. Let me, let me read to you from the, from the communique. One, the United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January 1st, 1979. Two, the United States of America recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. Now, let's go back and listen to this clip from Carter again, because they left a little something out there. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. And that is, he's reading point one verbatim. It's just what I just read you. The United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. The government of the United States of America acknowledges the Chinese position that there is but one China, and Taiwan is part of China. So the part that is left out in that announcement is, and I'll just read it, it's parts three through six. He read one, two, and seven. Parts three through six. The United States of America and People's Republic of China reaffirm the principles agreed on by the two sides in the Shanghai communique and emphasize once again that both wish to, uh, part four, both, both wish to reduce the danger of internal military, international military conflict, Five, neither should seek hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region or in any other region of the world, and each is opposed to efforts by any other country or group of countries to establish such hegemony. Six, neither is prepared to negotiate on behalf of any third party or enter into any agreements or understandings with the other directed at other states. And those are, those are kind of important. Those are kind of important elements. Because it is, once again... Reinforcing that even after we are declaring our recognition of them as the sole government and that Taiwan is a part of China, they're saying, you know, hey, this is of the top level of importance is this issue of hegemony, of interfering. It's, it's like, it's top level. And if you're, let's forget if you're a part of the CCP, if you're just the average Chinese citizen who's been brought up and, and is, you know, brought up on a diet of, of propaganda, 
So you're rice. You're not a bad person. You're not a you know a, a fire breathing communist, but you you believe the news you're getting. Well, from your perspective, all we're doing is interfering, and we've been doing it at the very least since the uh, the TRC or TRA, excuse me, Taiwanese Relations Act. That we and the the six points that we that we negotiated with them without the Chinese government, without the PRC. From their perspective, we are doing exactly what Carter leaves out. We are entering into pacts. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be entering into those pacts. I'm not saying we shouldn't be urinating on any agreement we have with China. <laughs> Maybe we should be. I'm just, again, trying to give you the perspective of where China's coming from so that we understand what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Because in their mind, they're justified. So we ought to understand why they feel justified. Uh, and it, it also in, in, the, in the second communique, that's where you know, the United States of America and the People's Republic of China will exchange ambassadors and establish embassies March 1st, 1979, which is what... You know, it, that makes it really formal. We don't have the embassy in Taiwan. Our embassy is on the mainland. So that's, we're, we're diplomatically, we are agreeing with them completely. So now, then we pass the Taiwanese Relations Act which authorized the U.S. to sell the defensive military equipment to Taiwan in order to dissuade the CCP from enacting a unilateral takeover of the island. And, you know, Jeremy, it got me wondering, we have a a fair, it's not an identical situation, but a similar situation. We have an island near us that we frequently talk about just steamrolling, right? Why don't we just go take Cuba? Why do we let them do this to us? Taiwan is why. We go take Cuba, within minutes, Taiwan is gone. Just a little perspective. Uh, So, because of the TRA, and because of the friction, and Reagan wanted to have a smooth relationship with China, in August 17th of 1982 comes along the third communique. And I'll just, I'm going to read far less of this than I read uh, of the earlier parts. The question of the United, this is in, this is in the communique. The questions, the question of the United States arms sales to Taiwan. uh, Oh, wait, hold on a second though. This is, sorry, pause for one moment. Well, Phil, go ahead and do a song and dance for me, will you? I wish I knew the Chinese anthem and sing that to fulfill our sponsorship agreement. Okay, here's what I have. Um, the question of the, of the United States arms sales to Taiwan was not settled in the course of negotiations between the two countries on establishing diplomatic relations. The two sides held differing positions, and the Chinese side stated that it would raise the issue again following normalization. The Chinese government reiterates that the question of Taiwan is China's internal affair. 
The United States government attaches great importance to its relations with China and reiterates that it has no intention of infringing on Chinese sovereignty and territorial integrity or interfering in China's internal affairs or pursuing a policy of two Chinas or one China, one Taiwan. That's, this is what we are explicitly agreeing to. The United States government states that it does not seek to carry out a long-term policy of arms sales to Taiwan, that its arms sales to Taiwan will not exceed either in qualitative or in quantitative terms the level of those supplied in recent years since the establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States and China, and that it intends gradually to reduce its sale of arms to Taiwan, leading over a period of time to a final resolution in so stating the United States acknowledges China's consistent position regarding thorough settlement of this issue. So in the third communique, we assure them that we're going to draw down our weapon sales to Taiwan. I'm sorry, let me be, let me be very precise here. It intends to gradually reduce its sale of arms. So that's different than saying it's going to. Mm-hmm. It intends to. And the United States, I'm sure, believes that it's being consistent here because it is, it is attaching security to all of this. And so in their mind, the arms sales to Taiwan are consistent with the earlier communiques because it is maintaining the status quo, maintaining the opportunity for a peaceful reunification. But I don't know if you notice, there's nothing in any of these communiques about peaceful reunification. Nothing. It is all about China's demand, and I would argue rightfully so, that their territory be respected. I hate that I'm arguing on behalf of the CCP about anything, but because they're criminal gangsters, let me just be clear. Uh, But America would do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I... It doesn't, to me, it doesn't sound like you're arguing on behalf of the CCP, but it's more that you're taking a posture of non-interventionist, favoring a non-interventionist view. Oh, to protect our interests. Right. If you want to strengthen national territorial borders and claims to national territorial borders, you have to respect them, even when you hate the person. Because you're undermining it, which again is why we don't go into Cuba. Because Taiwan would be gone. Uh, So we do these three communiques. And the third communique was August 17th, 1982. But meanwhile, in July, the prior month, we're in negotiations with Taiwan without the PRC to give them the six assurances. And this this drove the PRC nuts. They concluded we don't, we're not keeping our word. And, you know, I'm not saying that these guys are honorable. 
They certainly, you know, they steal our tech. They they enslave people. They don't seem very honorable. So I'm not saying that they've got like a moral ground to stand on, but they feel they do. So the six points real quick. China, just imagine you're China reading this. Imagine you're, you're, you're sitting at home drinking coffee in the morning or tea, whatever. And this is what you're reading. Point one, the United States would not set a date for termination of arms sales to Taiwan. Well, that's true. Point two, the United States would not alter the terms of the Taiwan Relations Act. Okay. That's true too. Which, by the way, really upsets the Chinese. <laughs> the United States, point three, the United States would not consult with China in advance before making decisions about U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. Okay, well, if you're China and you're sitting there saying, well, you've agreed that we're the only government, that there's only one China, that Taiwan's part of China, you are selling them arms. Could you imagine if China started selling arms to Hawaii? Yeah, right. I know it's not an exact analogy, but just to try and bring it a little closer to home. Point four, the United States would not mediate between China and Taiwan. So that's they're throwing China a bone in that one. Point five, the United States would not alter its position about the sovereignty of Taiwan, which was that the question was one to be decided peacefully by the Chinese themselves and would not pressure Taiwan to enter into negotiations with China. Okay, that's great, but I don't see that in the three communiques. I don't, th I don't see the peaceful part in the three communiques. Point six, the United States would not formally recognize Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan. That's in point six, which completely contradicts. Sounds like a total opposite of the communiques. Total opposite. If you're China, how are you not apoplectic at this point? And this it is in make, 1982. You know what it would make me, do you know what I would do if I was China? I would release a virus in a bowl of bat soup to the whole world. <laughs> That's well, how angry I would be. Or you would plot a decades-long war. Or that. Against or that. a country you don't trust, who you know can, can best you. You're going to plot to be able to beat them, which is exactly what they've done. And... So I have a report uh, that I'm going to play uh, later on down the line here. And we're about to get into all the clips now. Uh, of, Finally. Uh, something called Operation Dragon. Finally. Lord. But thank <laughs> you right. for the, thank you for, I do feel now like I can go into it with a proper understanding. Good. Good. Uh, so thank you for that background. Uh, and I'll just say, so this this was, you know, to them, the major betrayal was in 1982. And uh, at around and in, in the 90s, our NSA was uh, had something called Operation Dragon Lord, which was a an investigation into Chinese infiltration in the American political system and in Canada. So within, within a decade of this, they are infiltrating. It's be, it's begun at that point, where before they may have just been bad partners. Now they're at war. 
the hybrid war has begun at that point, I believe. So uh, with that, here comes the first clip. And you remember I started with the Taiwanese president coming to the United States to meet with Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. And, and now you've got the background for how to understand all of this. Here's the first clip from CBS Mornings. China furious over Taiwan president uh, Tsai Ing-wen meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Again, symbolically at the Reagan Library in California. And basically then he's the president of the Republic of China. Wait, no, no, she. Oh, she. Okay. Yes. Wait, she or she? <laughs> she. Tsai, Tsai, Tsai Ing-wen. I don't know if Wait. you're supposed to do the T at all or if you're not supposed to do the si, the S at all. T-S-A-I-I-N-G-W-E-N. Wait, but that's a, it's a Sai, but is it a he, her, or a him, she? No, it is just, she is just a woman. Okay. A, really a, a regular old-fashioned woman. All right. Okay. Woman 1.0. But she, her, is the president of the Republic of China. According to <laughs> she, her, <laughs> I see what the you way did there. things go, right? That this is their view uh, is that okay, Taiwan so, is the Republic of China, right? What's that? Their Taiwan, view is, Taiwan is, is the Republic Taiwan of China. Taiwan is yes. still the Republic of China from before the uh, revolution. I don't right? think that they, I don't know if they recognize Republic of China at all. I think that they, they see Taiwan as a province of China, period. This government. Correct. The PRC. No, but I'm talking about the Republic of China. The Taiwan yes, they people. see themselves like, yeah, yes, they're the Republic of China. No, I'm sorry, the Republic, yes. The Republic yeah. of China, correct. The original right. Republic of China prior to the Mao Revolution and right. Civil War and all of that. Okay. I guess I should check to make sure. I don't know whether or not they continue to call themselves the Republic of China or if well, they just call themselves it, Taiwan. Like on yes. Wikipedia says Taiwan, officially the Republic of China, is a country in East Asia. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Wikipedia. And, if, and it has, and it <laughs> has Declaring a, war against China. <laughs> yeah, and it says Republic of China, and then they have a flag and everything. And this not the it's not the communist, the Maoist Chinese flag. It's... A different one. Well, okay, that makes that actually makes sense because that's part of the assurances that China made at some point to Taiwan uh, that they could, if they if they reunify, they will be able to be a an autonomous province that they'll be able to have their system. It was the two systems uh, promise that that you know was supposed to apply to Hong Kong, which didn't end up working. I see. Okay. And again, you can say, you know, we're acting against China because they've betrayed their, you know, uh, two systems uh, assurances. Well, they could say, well, yeah, we've betrayed that because you guys have betrayed everything else in the in the document. Why should we uphold any of this? The uh, People's Republic of China. Right. Everybody has a reason to say the other is not living up to it. Right. And frankly, both sides, I think, have legitimate claims on that. I just wish they came up with a different name for the People's Republic of China that was more different than the Republic of China because it, is it would confusing. be easy. It would be easier to understand. I mean, then there's it's PRC like the, and the People's ROC Front of Judea and, and the Judeo's Judean People's Front. <laughs> yeah, it could be 
I mean, they could have come up with something. No, because they're both claim. They're both laying claim to the same thing. So that's the. I think that's why they have to have that kind of similarity. Could have been like Chinese People's Republic or something. So again, they are this meeting at the rig. It's happening at the Reagan Ranch, and this press conference that McCarthy gives. uh, Not it's not with. Tsai Ing-wen, but it's uh, with the Democrats and the Republicans together showing their unity on this issue. And they're standing right in front of a section of the, of the Berlin Wall. Now, if you're Xi and you're watching that, G, the G of, of China, of the PRC, G, G him, uh, imagine you're looking at that. Message loud and clear, right? Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's CBS, CBS Mornings. China's government is angry and threatening a forceful response after Taiwan's president met yesterday in California with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other members of Congress. The meeting between Taiwan's president and Speaker McCarthy was first and foremost a clear signal to China. Her arrival and welcome by the speaker and a bipartisan group of lawmakers was meant to telegraph that America would come to the rescue if China tried to seize Taiwan by force. Actually, I think that's very ambiguous. I'm not sure why they said that. That That's a little bit odd, but close. Predictably, China was furious. Today, the foreign ministry spokeswoman warned it would use strong and resolute measures to defend its sovereignty. Last time, a warning like that meant an intimidating display of force. China's missiles, planes and warships all around Taiwan. That was in August 2022, after then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island to meet with President Tsai. Michael Cole is an analyst with the Republican Institute in Taipei. There is absolutely no doubt that they will do something uh, to try to punish Taiwan uh, as a result of President Tsai's, particularly over her meeting with, uh, with Speaker McCarthy. And to add fuel to the fire, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall, has just landed here in Taipei with a bipartisan delegation to meet senior officials, including President Tsai. So we are really ratcheting up the tensions with China. Again, imagine you are in the PRC and or the CCP and... We have Nancy Pelosi has gone and met with with the president of Taiwan without consulting the, the CCP. Mm-hmm. Now she's coming through here, and our house, our new house speaker, is meeting with her here against the CCP's wishes. Wow, what a drastic change from the old leadership! <laughs> right, McCarthy. No, it's, it's like a, a difference it, of night and day, isn't it? No, he's he's right on board with the. With all of this, oh, the, is it making? Well, you have sense to understand. Yet? This is this is we're we're going into the Cold War, and I'm going to play for you next the his his Q and A with press uh, in front of the slice of the Berlin Wall, and I'm going to, I, I'm not even going to say it. I want to see if you pick up on what I picked up on. Oh, you want to see if I'm as smart as you are? I want to see if I'm making things up in my own head like a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> my tinfoil. So here we go. This is his his press conference. 
Hi, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Michael Martinez from Reuters. President Tsai has just returned from Latin America. Um, Taiwan has been losing allies around the world slowly, uh, including recently Honduras. I'm curious if you think that the United States is doing enough to stop that, if you th even think it's the United States' business to step in or, or uh, say to Taiwan's allies that they should remain with Taiwan. I think that's one of the reasons the President was out communicating with others. I have a fear of some of these nations um, changing their positions based upon a hope and dream of uh, financial support for some infrastructure. We have found at times um, when China has done that, those nations have become in a, in a more economic challenging time, maybe a dam not working in Ecuador, maybe becoming under financial burdens. So I, I truly believe that all nations should look at um, where it is and make a decision. I would wish all nations would make a decision based upon democracy and freedom and peace. That's a nice pipe dream. You remember in the in the previous uh, our previous episodes, say, we, that sounds that's like sounds like what's going on over in Africa. Right. This is this is what you and I have been talking about. That right now the United States is in a great competition with China to gain allies in what is now the world being divided up into this new Cold War, and we are at a severe disadvantage in that because. You know, and here, here you hear him saying, you know, we hope that people would choose freedom and democracy. Yeah, well, we've proven ourselves to not exactly be the defenders of freedom and democracy anymore. We hope you'll choose freedom and democracy over your bridges that we can't afford to build anymore. Oh, not only that, the bridges that, okay, we'll pay you. And like we said, they're gonna, if we give them money, it just goes to China anyway, because China comes in and builds the infrastructure. Yeah, because they're creating, uh, making sure they get all these allies. You could substitute ally for dependent. Uh, these uh, are just dependents. Well, the but that's We're the thing. We can't even effectively make them dependents because we don't build anything. That's what I'm saying. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying. And, and and okay, well, so let me let me continue with this. Uh, yeah, here we go. Here's more of Kevin McCarthy. Also, do you think that the country should specifically commit to the defense of Taiwan should China attempt anything uh, militarily. Now, remember in the previous report, you heard that that's exactly what Kevin said we were going to do. We're going to come to their defense. Um, look, I know everyone puts these hypotheticals out there. Our goal is that hypothetical never comes to fruition. And what we know through history, the best way to do that is supply the weapons to allow people to deter war supply the weapons that people could defend themselves. It is a critical lesson that we learned through Ukraine, that the idea of just sanctions in the future is not going to stop somebody, but determinant of being able to self-control is going to stop that. So he's basically admitting that our sanctions don't work, which is correct. That's, that's the first thing. Not anymore. No. There are we we already spent too much uh, building up their economy, and you can't sanctions only work if your currency is the dominating currency. And while ours still is, everybody knows what is it backed by. We don't make anything. The Chinese make things. They if you make things, you have power. So no, and de de-dollarization is everywhere now. That that's and I have more on that too. That de-dollarization yeah. is 
inevitable. And when they report that it's inevitable, we are to accept that it is. Oh, it uh, is. It may not be. It may not be. You no, it is. That. It is. It's ha- it's already happening. Uh, it, uh, there's a way to there's a way to prevent it. Uh, I'm sorry. There's a way to mitigate against it, and that involves bringing freedom back. But without that, we're we're a cheap knockoff of China. No one's going to come invest here because you can't make money here. We are almost as unsafe a bet as China, and China makes things. So if you've got money, where are you going to put it? Virtue signaling Wall Street or money-making China? Is supply the weapons that allow people to deter war. Supply the weapons that people could defend themselves. It is a critical lesson that we learned through Ukraine. And that lesson also is not lost on China. <laughs> that that we, very mel- we very well might attack China if they invade Taiwan. That might be part of why we're doing what we're doing in Ukraine. Thank you, thank you so much, Andrea Mitchell from NBC. Oh, listen to this. Thank you, thank you so much, Andrea Mitchell from NBC News. And um, it's remarkable to see this bipartisan gathering. And I was at the Brandenburg Gate with President Reagan and covered that. So this is quite a moment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can you believe that? Like In front of the whole world. Sure. Let me make sure that I emphasize the symbolism for our pro-war stance here today. And my gravitas in the moment. I was there. And now I'm here. So I know what I mean. I was there with President Reagan, who we all hate, sort of. <laughs> they all hated Reagan. Yeah. Let me ask you. Do you worry, Mr. Speaker, that you will escalate tensions with Beijing? No, um, it's not our intention to escalate. But what I see today around... Is there a word called escalate? Escalate. Uh, it's not our intention to escalate. <laughs> and you know what else? He, he sounds like... So you know, who, who does he sound like? Do you, do you know who he sounds like? No. Oh, he's a... Li- yeah, you're right. <laughs> totally. Say it. Just like our other president. <laughs> Just in the... In our other president in the North American, uh, what do we have? A North American treaty. <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Yes, totally. He sounds so much like him. Uh, it's less annoying. I'll give him. He's less annoying than Trudeau. He says more meaningful things than Trudeau. I don't know. He does. There's have there a contest on that one. Uh, it'll be close. You're right. But what I see today around the world is disturbing. And I think that unites. And the one thing I would take pride in as an American, you're watching your lawmakers stand together with both parties, advocating greater democracy, with a plan to help deter any chance of a war in the future. And what we learned from Reagan, peace through strength. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Alex Michelson from Fox 11. What is your message to China who's threatening retaliation for doing this today? Well, my first message to China, there's no need for retaliation. But the one thing I would say to China, too, at no time, I am the Speaker of the House. There's no place that China's going to tell me where I can go or who I can speak to, whether you be foe or whether you be friend. I'm not the general manager of the Houston Rockets. 
And the one thing I hope all countries see is that we're united in the same approach, together, on both sides. And we're going to speak with one voice when it comes to China or any others when we look at foreign policy. So to me, this was the launch of the Cold War. This was our declaration of the Cold War. Well, or a continuance of. I mean, I think the, the, the Pelosi thing was definitely part of it also when she went over there. I mean, that was almost in a, that was a, this is just maybe like more being more overt about what's going on. Having a meeting with the president of Taiwan at the Reagan ranch with the slice of the Berlin wall as your background is that in my mind, man, that's a declaration of war. Reagan, no, I agree with Reagan, you. I just uh, Reagan not necessarily said, the beginning. Uh, it's his, more of a recommitment. Was that? It's to me. I agree with you in a, in a sense. I'm just not. Sh- I would. I don't know if I call it the beginning. I think it's more of a reaffirmation, and and taking a stand for McCarthy, saying I am the same as Nancy Pelosi. I think that, and this is what I wanted to see if you picked up on. It may be harder without the visual. But the way that the press is interacting with McCarthy. Yes, that's what I just was going to say. They, th- This guy, I think, I think I was going to say what you were just going to say. Go for it. <laughs> is listen to the respect they're giving this guy who was endorsed by the Nazi Hitler Trump. <laughs> they are treating him like the president. Yeah, and this guy was endorsed by Nazi Hitler Trump. It's amazing. They are thirsty to interact with a leader who is an adult, who isn't senile or bombastic. That's Well, I don't see I I don't look at it that they, way. Wait, they've got, he's it. the third most powerful person in the country, and numbers 1 and 2 are checked out. So if you're the media, like, I don't even know if they expected this, but they found themselves suddenly in a presidential situation. McCarthy, I think McCarthy's going to, I don't know if he's going to run or if he's setting himself up, but he, or he's setting himself up for the eventual uh, appointment, maybe, if there are two people out. That was, he I, Maybe, is, I didn't look at it that way. I, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good point. I, I guess I, I didn't look at it that way, but I, I look at it just as this is a guy that, is a war hawk. Yes. Like all of the rest of the neocon Republican party. Yes. He is leading the confrontation. Correct. Right. Neocons are in charge. No question whatsoever. Right. So as long as he's, because he's not taking a stance of Trump actually, which is peace through strength. He's taking a more, a much more of a pro pro war hawkish stance and confrontational stance. If you look at this great history you just laid out for us with the three communiques, then he's he's really this is a this is a provocational uh, position he's taking. What I don't understand is why did we get our provocative? Provocative. Sorry. Why? Why did we get into this situation where we made ourselves completely dependent on a power, a hostile power that we were poking in the eye the whole way through? What in the world were we thinking? 
Well, we like war. I guess so. I mean, either we're complete morons or this was the end game we always wanted was confrontation. Well, I mean, that's the broader landscape with the military industrial complex. And we don't like what what North Korea does. We don't right. North we don't like the China enables North Korea to be a thorn in our side. We're not even from there. And we are a massive thorn in China's side with Taiwan. And again, don't get me wrong, I want I want the Republic of China to storm into the mainland and take them over. <laughs> I don't want Hey 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 hey, our sponsors <laughs> said not to say that stuff. <laughs> they said not to say anything bad about uh no I, I mean I I I hope good things for them too. Uh, right after the People's Republic of China totally takes over and th- throws the communists out. I have no love for the communists. And you know, look, you might make an argument that hey, we're America. Our our mission in life is not to honor agreements. Our mission in life is to spread freedom and destroy communism. I, I'm not sure that those can go together like that all in that bundle, <laughs> but you have to think you have, part of being able to spread freedom is being a country of your word. Which anyway, we are not any longer. No, we are not any longer. And I think that I think China's had a big hand in helping us get there. They've been undermining us in very creative ways for a very long time. And we've played the role perfectly. So, okay, we, the, we've been ratcheting up the tensions with China. And how's it going? Is the United States dollar under threat? Yes. And this is from I-24 News out of Israel. Is the United States dollar under threat? Well, the U.S. dollar became the backbone of the global economy after World War II because of America's robust economy, its democracy, and its transparent regulatory systems, which made the nation seem like a safe place for international investors. But now the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, have announced plans to develop a new currency. Their goal is to reduce reliance on the U.S. dollar and other Western currencies as well and protect themselves from international pressure. In fact, Brazil and China have already struck a deal to buy past the dollar when paying for trade goods, which is a major milestone in Beijing's long-term plans to establish its own currency, the, the yuan, as the dominant international currency. You know, just to give a little bit of background here, it is the case that the U.S. dollar as has a role that is outsized relative to the 24% of world GDP that the U.S. commands. So the U.S. uh, dollar is involved in almost 90% of all international trade settlements and around about 60% of foreign currency reserves around the world held by central banks are held in U.S. dollars. So the BRICS nations combined their GDP is around about 25% of world GDP vis-a-vis the U.S. now at 24%. And so it's not surprising that these nations collectively are saying, hey, wait a minute, why should our uh, macroeconomic policies and exchange rates mm-hmm. uh, uh, be at the mercy of uh, U.S. dollar uh, Federal Reserve uh, decision-making? Yeah, good question. If you're hold, why would you hold our debt if we're just printing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, making your your debt less valuable all the way through? Because we're having a better place for transvestite athletes to compete. 
It, right. So you can get away with this for a little while if you are the sole land of milk and honey and freedom. And our Constitution gives us that opportunity. If we were living by it, we would be. We wouldn't be worried about the Chinese. Everyone would want to do business with us because we are a free country, which is how we got away with this for as long as we did. And now that we are no longer a free country, this is another bit of evidence of that fact because the rest of the world is caught on that we are no longer a safe investment. And if we're no longer a safe investment, well, what are you doing? You're just going to go where you can make an investment, maybe less safe, but you're going to go make the investment in China. Even though you disagree with them, even though you know your assets may be seized, because what's the difference? And it's having its intended effect. Listen to this. This is from Vantage, which is an independent news service out of India. Every once in a while, we ask the question, who is winning the war in Ukraine? And victory is measured in many ways, not just in terms of territory, but also the political goals that each side strikes. Tonight, we want to tell you about Russia's wins. Russia has one more buyer of oil, and that buyer is Japan. And this is a very, very significant turn, a big win for Russia, a big blow to the West, and vindication of sorts for India. Although it doesn't really help India, we'll tell you why in just a bit. But first, let's understand why this is such a big deal. You see, Japan is a close ally of the U.S. Japan joined the West in sanctioning Russia. And now the same Japan has decided to buy Russian oil. How can they do that? If Japan had sanctioned Russia, how can it buy Russian oil? Because it kept oil and gas out of the sanctions, just like Europe did. Japan stopped short of sanctioning Russian oil and gas, and now it wants to buy cheaper Russian oil. This is a setback to America's plans of containing Russia. And to add insult to injury, Japan is buying Russian oil above the Western price cap. We'll tell you about it. This move demonstrates what the world has always known, that Western sanctions regime is hollow. And they're not doing it in dollars. No wonder Kevin McCarthy was talking about how sanctions don't work because they're not working. Because we don't have the power. We've shut down our fossil fuels. We've outsourced our manufacturing. What do we have left? Virtue signaling. Gender studies degrees. Gender mutilation. Two-tiered justice. Sounds great. So China's ratcheting up the diplomatic pressure as well, not just the financial. They're isolating the United States on the world stage. I don't know if you've noticed that. But as they gain in power, people are going into their orbit and leaving ours. Here is from G from CGTV, which is CCP controlled. European Ministers of Parliament, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly, both Irish, they lay out how a lot of people around the world are seeing it, unfortunately. You have seen uh, the effort by the Americans to drive a wedge between the European Union and China in America's interest, not Europe's. And it's very unfortunate 
that at this time we feel that the European Union hasn't had the courage to stand up to the bullying and the pressure from the US. The US says that China is a threat to the security of the Americans. They says that China is a threat to the security of Europe. Well, we don't agree, right? On the, China hasn't dropped a bomb on anybody in 40 years. China is not a threat to the security of the people of America. China is a threat to America's long-held financial supremacy, the supremacy of the dollar. China is threatening that, so America has a problem with China. It's not because China is a threat to their security, it's a threat to their financial supremacy. And sadly, the Americans are very keen to get Europe on the same page as themselves. They want to drive that wedge between the EU and China to benefit America's interest. Uh, and the problem is, is that the US are losing their dominant position. They have lost it economically um, and they are losing it politically. And in many ways when, you know, it is, as they say, the last bite of a dying snake, it's the most venomous, it's the most poisonous and the instability that's hurting citizens all over the world, including in the US. It's so sad. It's so sad. Uh, but I think it's, it's from a position of weakness rather than strength. Uh, this is amazing. Because of our well, actions, we're nice losing that hear. PR war to the communists, Jeremy. Oh, that was just cheering me up. <laughs> no, I, I'm not disagreeing with what they're saying. No, they're, some of it. They're but, right, but it's very becomes very real, doesn't it? Well, hold on. To hear I will that. take. I'm going to take issue with something where th this claim that China hasn't dropped any bombs is kind of nonsense. China financed all of our bombs. They didn't need to drop any bombs because they had us doing it for them. Don't worry. There'll be a stage where China is dropping the bombs. Hello. Well, <laughs> Come back to the microphone, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I thought you were going to say something else. I will. <laughs> uh so, and you can uh, just as you know, I'm going to go back to the the that Vantage show. This is a different report from Vantage again, independent news out of India, and you can hear the frustration in their in in this woman's voice, this anchor's voice, and I don't think that she's alone. Listen to what she says. China is threatening war on Taiwan, but it also wants to play peacemaker in Ukraine. This alone should sum up the dragon's duplicity. I love that she calls China the dragon. Mm -hmm. it, it may betray it may betray a little bit of bias, <laughs> but I, I love that she says that. Chinese warships and warplanes are zeroing in on Taiwan because Taiwan's president met the U.S. House Speaker in California. The same China is calling for peace between Russia and Ukraine, and legitimizing China's role is France. President Emmanuel Macron of France is in Beijing. He says Europe should not decouple from China. Why is Macron appeasing Xi Jinping? How does it help him? We'll discuss. Meanwhile, China is at the center of another major development. The foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and Iran are in Beijing to figure out the next steps in their truce. Where does that leave the US? It appears it will have to learn to live with the dragon. It will have to learn to live with the dragon. 
That's yeah. just that's just fact now. It's over. We've already lost the first round of the Cold War. And the Chinese are going to make sure, if they can, that we don't get to a second round. They're not looking to have a Cold War like we had with Russia. They're going to look to beat us immediately. And take our corn. Yeah, we are their breadbasket. And I don't think the, the communists care so much about losing market share over here. They don't need to when they have the rest of the world. Right. And they're going to develop the rest of the world. They're going to turn us into their slaves. Russia was, I mean, Russia is a huge country. Soviet Union was a huge, powerful country. And they have their own market now. Their own totally, market can I mean, support them. For a long time, they had nothing like we're going to have. So because of their economic and manufacturing strength, China is able to play it both ways. They can act aggressively towards Taiwan while calling for peace and stability elsewhere. And people will gravitate towards them because they build things. And they're, they're squaring up. They're, they're looking at it going, okay, yeah, America, you look uh, uh, ossified and in decline. China, you look totally ascendant. Well, where am I going to put my money? Even if you think that America is the land of freedom and you love America more, you're just doing the calculation. So, Sky News. Sky News covered uh, France going to China. They dropped something at the end of this report that just blows me away. Listen to this. Macron will know that his, doesn't matter what he says, he won't change the political calculus of, of China. That's right. <laughs> France is completely powerless. China's the big dog. But um, by being accompanied by Ursula von der Leyen, who's been very critical of China, particularly on uh, their very close, without limits relationship um, with Ukraine, with, between China and Russia. Okay. That is, he's talking about the, pres the current president of the EU, uh, which I guess is a rotating position and um, they've been she's been using really robust language and she's even been using some of that today um, she's reminded though china of its obligations as a permanent member of the un security council which is all about peace and security but it's also evident from china's language that actually they are trying desperately not to take sides in this conflict they're not for the war they keep reiterating not providing weapons they clearly want to keep themselves a degree of neutrality in this war zelensky's been visiting poland and one of the things that came out during that polish visit was the first time that one of his advisors said that if the spring offensive, if Ukraine's spring offensive is effective, then Ukraine will be willing to talk to Russia about uh, Crimea. Now, it's the first time previously President Zelensky has been really firm. We're not going to have any talks unless Russia is completely out of the Donbass and completely out of Crimea. So it's a real softening of the language, and particularly the West, that's always said militarily, it'd be really difficult for Ukraine to actually ev evict Russia out of Crimea. That's what the West has said? I'm pretty sure the West has been saying that we're not going to have negotiations until uh, Russia leaves all Ukrainian territory. But how amazing was that, that he drops that, that Zelensky is willing to negotiate at the end of the spring offensive uh, in a way that would let Russia keep the Donbass region? Basically a surrender. And well, he's got the weakest country in the world as his 
sugar daddy. <laughs> well, so here's what I think is happening. And, you know, I've said I think that the Cold War between the U.S. and, and, and China is somewhat contrived. I think hardliners in both camps want it because it provides a lot of opportunity for organization, solidarity, consolidation, um, like societal order, uh, uh, keeping your people scared of the enemy gives you a lot of control. So there's a lot of incentives to have this. And so what I think is happening is you're going to watch the, the Ukrainian war is going to end in spring. I'll put that down as my prediction. It's going to end in spring. And you're going to have in Ukraine what essentially is the Berlin Wall. It may not be, they're not going to, they may not build a wall, but it, symbolically, that's going to be the demarcation between East and West. Well, I think, uh, I think China wants war. I think the globalist wants war. And uh, the globalists in our country want war, and that's what they're pushing toward. And we may think that we are building up to a controlled Cold War, but again, I don't think China has that as their end game. I think as their end game, they have destroyed us. They've had it with us. And they can see that they're more powerful than us. They see it in every way. That we're misfits. They have complete control over their situation, and we have no control over our situation. And here's KT McFarland on Fox Business to illustrate that a little bit. When Reagan came in, we had a military, we were at a military disadvantage with the then Soviet Union. We had planes that couldn't fly, ships that couldn't sail because they didn't have gasoline, and we were cannibalizing tanks on the runway to get one to work, you needed two. So what Reagan did was he came in, he fixed the economy, fixed the military, we won the Cold War. But at that time, the Soviet Union, even though they were ahead of us probably militarily, they were way behind us economically. And they were way behind us with technology. And so fast forward today, we now have an adversary that has weapons that we don't have, right? Hypersonic weapons. They now have technology that we don't have. And their economy is growing ever bigger. And they have trade relationships that they're getting, it, particularly in the global south, which is the area of growth in the future. We don't have that stuff. So I think that the Biden administration, the fixes are there if they would only do them, but they won't. They have a military that they've sacrificed on the altar of wokeism instead of a military that's a warfighting military. And they've sacrificed the American economy and prosperity at the altar of a will-o'-the-wisp chase for climate change. I think she started to touch on a point at the end, but totally underscored what that we have something China doesn't have, and that's transvestite generals. <laughs> Right. Part of why we won the Cold War was because the contrast was so obvious. The Soviet Union was where freedom and hope went to die. The United States was where you were invited in and could flourish. And we've squandered it. We no longer have a contrast. It's a very dull contrast. And, and uh, so... China has, this is a hybrid war they're fighting. They're, they've undermined us 
uh, undermined us economically. We've certainly undermined ourselves, but uh, we're undermined economically. We're undermined diplomatically. But then there's also the clandestine undermining, which is what's happening in Mexico with the fentanyl, where they are the Chinese are exporting the basic ingredients for fentanyl, and it goes to Mexico, and the and the gangs, uh, the drug lords, uh, mix it there, and they send it up north into into the United States. And, uh, Mexico, uh, the president of Mexico, uh, wrote a letter to. Xi in China begging for his help. Oh my gosh, this letter was so groveling. It was unbelievable. Uh, we can post a link to it in the description. Uh, and uh, and then they surround us in the north. And again, I told you earlier on, we've known since the 90s about this threat. That's when it really became on our radar to the point where we were sharing it with other governments. And in this case, it was with Canada. An analyst for the U.S. National Security Agency has confirmed American agencies were concerned about Chinese activities in Canada. And a former CSIS senior intelligence officer tells us he was aware of the U.S. operation. This is from the CBC. And it was published uh, in uh, March, March 19th. Well, Michelle Juno-Katsuya says Canadian policymakers have been ignoring warnings from him and others for decades. How serious is China's political interference from your perspective in Canadian politics? It became extremely serious and became extremely dangerous also for our democracy, for our system. Uh, I was the chief of Asia-Pacific for CSUS in the mid-90s when we were corresponding with our uh, U.S. counterpart and we were exchanging data, we were exchanging worries about what was going on. Uh, when we published our report, it was totally cited and, and nobody wanted to pay attention to what we were saying. At that period of time, we could have been capable to probably mitigate the threat that China was starting to uh, 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 engage against us. Today, it has evolved to the size that now the revelation of the Globe and Mail uh, tells us. And uh, this whistleblower is doing us a service to reveal what uh, all government, every party, every government has ignored for decades now. So it's not only this current government that is at fault. All previous governments were also ignoring what we were saying. Uh, this has been going on for the last 40 years, including from Mr. Mulroney all the way to Mr. Trudeau today, every prime minister has been uh, has been compromised at one point or another by those agents of influence. Now, to me, that report sounds like damage control, because if you recall from our previous episode, uh, Big D and AZ had sent us the clip about the uh, the CSIS, the Canadian secret uh, authority i forget the, what they stand for they're there it's their nsa basically right uh, uh had uh somebody leaked from inside CSIS that the trudeau government had been warned that uh that there that the chinese had infiltrated uh up to 11 ministers of parliament and uh, that they warned him prior to the elections and he did nothing on it because uh the the infiltrations were of benefit to the liberal party. And now along comes this guy to say, actually it's everybody. It goes way back to me. This takes pressure off of Trudeau. 
It says, no, he's just the latest one. This has been going back since the 90s. So... Even if, but even if I, even if I believe that 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 he's really an op, essentially uh, delivering this news to to give Trudeau some cover, I think it's still true. I believe that there was Operation Dragon Lord, and it was the United States working with Canada to investigate Chinese infiltration. But the timing is interesting to me. Again, the Chinese felt betrayed in the '80s by Reagan betrayed and then fast forward a decade and the problem is big enough that it's on their radar the infiltration is on their radar and we've been living with it all this time it's only the threat has only been growing so what do you do we're entering into this new cold war and we are in a tough spot we don't have the strong hand like we did going into the war with Russia. And we have to compete. I mean, that's really, wait, you really, you've got one of two choices. The first choice is to grin and bear it, knuckle down, take our, take our licks, regroup and reclaim our constitution, reclaim our position as a beacon of light on that shining hill. No, wait, shining beacon, wait, beacon, what is it? Beacon of light on the shining hill? Uh, reclaim our position as the leader of freedom, making freedom our number one uh, manufacturing product. Isn't that what we're doing? Freedom to hack up little children's bodies? I don't know if that's the freedom people are looking for. <laughs> people oh. are looking, people are looking for a consistent set of rules, one system of justice, equality, uh, uh, sound economic policy. Those were the things that attracted people nonstop. Those are the things that undermined regimes around the world. What about freedom from fossil fuels? Uh, that's Yeah, I don't know if that's a freedom if you want to use fossil fuels. <laughs> If you're in the fossil fuel business, you're not going to really regard that as freedom. Or if you manufacture a product that depends on fossil fuels, which is almost everything. Oh. Here's hmm. a clip from Cyrus Jansen, on the founder of TikTok, Jiang Yiming. And it talks about the competitive aspect. This is a chart that frustrates many American politicians, many of whom are Facebook shareholders, by the way. The average Facebook or Instagram user spends around 50 minutes per day on either platform, but TikTok has the highest retention of any social media platform, with its users nearly doubling that time and spending 95 minutes per day using the app. I believe the biggest reason the US wants to ban TikTok is not because of national security concerns. As the TikTok CEO testified last week, TikTok has addressed every single security concern and is complying with every single law in the United States. 
The real reason American politicians want to ban TikTok is because of frustration. The US has grown accustomed to being number one, and we can't stand the thought of a young Chinese entrepreneur outperforming and creating something better than our own American tech companies. Let's take you back to the beginning and share with you the vision and the journey of Jiang Yiming, the founder and chairman of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. Jiang thought, what if I could reverse engineer the process? Instead of people telling the search engine what content they wanted, why not create a website that uses artificial intelligence to track users' interests and then recommend content to that user? At the time, this was a completely revolutionary concept, and it became the cornerstone of Toutiao, a Chinese news information website which would become ByteDance's core product. But here is where things get interesting. Through Toutiao, Zhang had already achieved domestic success in China, but he is part of a new generation of Chinese entrepreneurs who have bigger dreams. Many of China's young entrepreneurs have been educated in the West, have a keen understanding of both Western and Chinese culture, and aspire to create something much bigger. Zhang and his colleagues wanted to create a social media platform that not only dominated China, but also dominated the international market, which at the time, Facebook had a commanding lead on. In 2012, Facebook absolutely dominated social media around the world. You would be crazy to think that you could take on a company as successful as Facebook. But on the other side of the world, Jiang Yiming sat in a small Beijing apartment with his colleagues and came up with a crazy idea. What if we could create a platform that not only dominates Chinese social media, but also has worldwide appeal and can challenge Facebook too? From day one, Jiang Yiming had the vision of taking his company outside of China and achieving international success. Equipped with the knowledge and the power of the Toutiao algorithm, Zhang and his team began using AI to start recommending relevant content to TikTok users, and the results were astonishing. TikTok users couldn't put down their phones. They were consumed with the new content that was being recommended to them every time they opened the app. And TikTok's algorithm became stronger and stronger every time someone opened the app. China is now the world leader in artificial intelligence for one simple reason. The more data the algorithm can process, the more sophisticated the algorithm will become. With the world's most populous country, China dominates in data. And with more data than any country, China's AI models are the most sophisticated and advanced in the entire world. In fact, this is the secret sauce behind TikTok and the reason why even today users spend double the amount of time on the app compared to both Facebook and Instagram. In fact, if we look at the most downloaded apps on the American App Store, four of the top seven apps are Chinese. Once again, young Chinese entrepreneurs don't just want to dominate the domestic Chinese market. They are hungry to prove to the world that China can invent amazing products that every country can use. The ultimate sign of success is when a Chinese company can become the number one most downloaded app in the United States, which is just what Timu has accomplished for most of the last six months. That report actually gave me an anxiety attack the first time I watched it. We can't yep. compete. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is why we're trying to ban TikTok. That's now, what I was going to say. It sounds like that maybe we just... That's why we want to get rid of them to help out Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Twitter and everybody. Now, if you are an investor elsewhere in the world and you're looking at that and you're going, well, geez, in China, I can very inexpensively get my startup going and there's all the technical skills. You can't swing a stick without, without hitting an engineer. Uh, or or when I go to America, where if I'm too successful, they're just going to cancel my company. 
I mean, think about that, America. That that's what we represent. I know that it's that it's very scary that it's these Chinese companies that are getting all of our data. And yes, we need to somehow figure out how to how to deal with that. But TikTok's only one app. What are we going to do? We're going to ban all apps from China? Do people think that's actually going to work? Uh, talk about uh, being isolationist. The left is constantly saying Trump is an isolationist. He's an isolationist. He's an isolationist. What do you think shutting companies out of our markets is? Investment is going to dry up. So we can't compete. We haven't decided to compete. We have not even admitted to ourselves. Did you even know that China is ahead of us in AI? No, but I would have had my suspicions of that. It makes you. sense, but we as yeah. a as a culture, as a country, because we are blinded by a corrupt media led by a a government that more important their top level priority is never letting the American people know how bad it is. That's their top level priority. Never let a narrative through that will expose how bad off we are. The next generation, I would bet that China has used this AI to figure out how to beat us already, which is why they're handing us our butts. They're light years ahead of us in the next race. And our answer is to just lock people out instead of compete, instead of win those engineers to America because we're the bastion of freedom and we don't have slavery and we won't just take your money on a whim and imprison you in a gulag. Only now we have that. Hey, this is the most oppressive nation ever in the history of mankind. Have you been around lately? <laughs> right. Well, that's why I'm saying we're a cheap knockoff. We're not as oppressive as China, but we're trying to act like we are, I guess. We have this political prisoners. You've got Canada seizing people's money when they protest. This is not the land of freedom anymore. And it's only a matter of time before we're seizing people's money when they protest. With that new digital dollar. Okay, so just to finish, just to close this out, uh, if we're having trouble competing, there's always the other way. Inside the torpedo room, technicians practice loading high-precision weapons capable of taking out other submarines and ships. This is CNN with their exclusive access on a nuclear, a U.S. nuclear submarine. End warning. Understand warning. Rear Admiral Jablin says deterrence is the key objective. Even winning a war against an increasingly powerful China would likely result in devastating losses for both sides. I'm confident that should we be called upon to fight, and hopefully that will never happen, uh, that we would win. And when you think about it, you've got that. By the way, how scary is that? <laughs> he, they think that, that we can win a war with China. It's it. It's mutually assured destruction. A war with China. Do you think you would win a war with China? I think so. Yeah, I'm. Con- yeah. I'm pretty confident. I'm we'd pretty win. confident about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even this report contradicts that later on. And 
when you think about it, you've got that nuclear submarine watching for threats from China, but China, we now know, is home to the biggest Navy in the world. So from your reporting, having these conversations, what would the reality of a conflict with China actually look like? China does have a big Navy, but they don't have uh, the number of nuclear submarines, nuclear-powered submarines that the United States has, both ballistic missile and also these attack subs that can essentially travel around completely undetected. It is virtually impossible to know where they are, and they can track other countries' submarines that are louder, because a lot of them are diesel, uh, and just don't have the same level of, of sophisticated technology. So then the weapons that they use, they can take out subs, they can take out ships, they can take out uh, you know targets on the ground. So a lot of war game simulations say that, that China could lose up to 70 or 80 percent of its naval fleet if they tried to make an, uh, to invade Taiwan. However, it would result in thousands of casualties on both sides. The U.S. would also lose significant assets, including you know aircraft carriers. Basically, Aaron, there would be no winners in a war over Taiwan. That's the message that the U.S. is trying to send. We would win. <laughs> the me- the message is everybody loses. Also lose significant assets, including you know aircraft carriers. Basically, Aaron, there would be no winners in a war over Taiwan. That's the message that the U.S. is trying to send. We would win. <laughs> It's like a cow will be kamikaze. It's like if you attack, we'll just we'll just blow up the world. Everybody will lose. Well, I think it's very scary. I think we're very close to hot war with China potentially. Uh, if see, this is the problem again. Our calculation on our side may be, the, oh, well, we can have this controlled cold war with China and it'll be great for us because we'll be able to redefine the world. We'll have stronger allies. We'll be able to, you know, uh, there'll be a way to reorganize society in a way that they understand and, and, and march ever forward. Uh, but again, I don't think China has any intention of playing that role with us. They're going to they're gonna own the tempo. So when I hear... Well, one of our commanders blithely talking about how sure we could win. I don't think that's what we want to be thinking. I'm not sure. The only way we can win is with a massive military conflict with China. How many cities do you think will be nuked? They've got hypersonic nuclear missiles. They'll destroy us. And by the way, if you are an environmentalist, you probably love that because you'll, you'll kill off most of the humans. What's a little fallout when you destroy humans? I don't know if they'll need to destroy cities. I mean, they just knock out a couple of our defense systems and, and then it's over. They'll take a few. We, they'll take a few, man. They'll have, to make a, they'll have to, to make the message. They'll have to take a few. But you're right. They could EMP us knock out our lights and they know that they'll take a huge retaliatory hit maybe unless they've infiltrated us enough that they can control our retaliation they emp us they can't track us <laughs> well that's that's the benefit that might be our protection from the emp well, the emp might be the only way out of our digital prison future uh so i think it's uh, thank you for letting me take up the bulk of the program with this i just think this is more important than anything else out there and it's we're in dire straits people so go ahead and you know focus on trump focus on aoc focus on the friggin kardashians 
But none of it, zero, exactly zero of it is as important as what is taking place right now between the United States and China. And so I do hope that, that the, the, the amount of information that I passed on at the beginning of that to, to give it context was useful. Not just for the clips I played, but going forward. Well, I think the whole China thing is a big distraction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have to save it for a different episode because that's all anybody can take of China. Now, how do you not find value in that analysis? That long-form analysis probably of the conflict be a college China. course. What's that? It's probably good enough to be a college course these Ooh. days. Oh, that you would be great if we could offer people college credit if they donate. We can. <laughs> <laughs> it's only good at our school, but we can offer <laughs> at, it. At incorrect you. Yeah. Well, that song means it's time for us to tell people how it is we do things on the Truth Bait Podcast, and that is through the value for value model. And what that means is if you, our listeners, and you're not really just listeners, you are our producers, you are our citizen sponsors, we don't take any sponsor, any corporate sponsorship on this program. We are trying to get grant money, uh, but that's different. We don't take corporate sponsorship. Uh, we only have citizen sponsorship because that is how we are able to bring you a program that is unencumbered by the restrictions of having corporate or uh, state sponsorship. Uh, we, if we were sponsored by China, as Jeremy said, we would not be able to talk about China uh, being an evil empire. Uh, we wouldn't be able to talk about the elections being stolen. We wouldn't be able to talk about the vaccine being a uh, potentially a, a eugenic murder weapon, right? We couldn't talk about these things if we took corporate sponsorship. And that is why we subscribe to the value for value model. And if you feel as though what we've been talking about, if you feel this program delivers value to you, we ask you to bring some value to the program. And there are multiple ways to do that. There is what is the way that it's uh, phrased is time, talent, or treasure. And really, right now, we really focus on the time and talent. Uh, Jeremy, what are we? What are we really pushing for this week? What are we really asking for? Uh, we got a lot of feedback, like we asked in the last episode. We need more. We, we're just trying to get a pulse. On I what. have. I have that feedback. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Yes. Here it is. Yeah, I didn't get any. <laughs> So we need more. <laughs> I didn't receive any feedback from yesterday, from uh, the last episode. Which either means no one participated or no one listened this far into the podcast. That's entirely possible. So please uh, email truth at truthbait.com. We just want to hear from the people listening. Uh, what are the what are your favorite and least favorite aspects of the show, the subject matter, the length, how stupid we sound, how smart we sound. You agree, you disagree. You hate the long pauses in between the things we say, and sometimes it sounds like the audio has dropped off. Yeah, whatever it is, uh, we just, we're trying to, to tailor the program in a way that uh, people want to engage with, which 
requires it to be a program that you like and enjoy, which we need to know why in order to do more of that, because a lot of this has basically just come from our idea of what the show should or could look like, a little bit of experimentation here and there, and some of the feedback we have received. But now that people have been listening for, what is it, about a month and a half, almost two months now of uh, publishing shows uh, for people to hear, we want to hear what you think so uh outside of that the most important thing to do is to continue to share it uh, and to go on to the places where you listen and give it good reviews uh tell people why you like it and why you think they should listen to it too and in fact if we have a choice between you writing us and you writing a comment uh where you're where you are able to rate the podcast i think i would rather people just rate the podcast go and give a comment That's on that fine. rating yeah put it there put we'll it, see it put it there and we'll see it I mean, you can also write us but both and then we could read your comments if you like and if you don't just say to you know not to or if you want to be anonymous we don't have to read your name uh, but we do we like to encourage the participation uh, we want to be able to share the thoughts and questions uh, that people have uh, out there so definitely please participate in that uh, and that would be a great value to us if we're providing a great value to you this isn't free people it takes this is a full-time job for me at least jeremy is it a full-time job for you it's like a semi-part-time job yeah i really feel like i carry more of the weight but it is a full-time job for at least one of us so <laughs> it is no it really is a tremendous amount of work. There were uh, how many cues did I have in that last in that segment? Let's see. Like I had 60 or uh, 70, thirteen cues, and thirteen cues. Trust me, thirteen cues is cut down from twenty-five cues. Uh, to get to thirteen cues is a tremendous amount of lift. Uh, listening to content, finding the content, listening to it, clipping it, organizing it in a way that makes sense. And you felt like it took forever to get through it. Imagine how long it took to prepare it. <laughs> I have had some, some people say, wow, three hours. I mean, you guys are really, it's, that takes a lot. Let me tell you, it takes a lot more to shrink it down to an hour. That's right. <laughs> three hours. We're being we lazy go, giving it to you three can, hours. We could go six hours, be even easier. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't be so, so exciting or entertaining, though, that's for sure. The last way the, that, you can, uh, that you can bring value to this show is financially, eventually. Jeremy, I know that we had as, an, as a goal to have a, a way for people to donate by episode 10. It's now episode 14, and we do not have yet a way for people to donate financially. Should we should we even continue to try to make a, a prediction? When do you think we'll have no, a it's website? Not, when it's do you, just a, people just need to save their money for just when get, it's Just time. keep building it up. That's just save it, put it in a piggy bank. When we're ready to accept contributions, we'll take a windfall profit at that time 
and but, the reason is uh, the reason is look we 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 do we want to keep the show going and it's going to need to be funded somehow but we're still sort of inventing the show and what it is and figuring it out and part of that comes with infrastructure like a website which uh we're struggling to find the time to get up and live hopefully that is coming in the next i would say week but um because that actually like is that. what people can really that's going to be once that site is up and there's a place for people to put in their email that really is going to be the one of the most valuable things that you can do short of of donating financially which is to to join join up join the email list right be join up subscribe. be a joiner <laughs> also also uh if anybody has any skills that they can help with like one thing we uh could use help with is social media presence so anybody that is has any skill in uh you know running social media campaigns which is usually means uh finding a link or a clip or something and then clicking post and you know but with a truth bait account um you know, we we need we can't we just you just simply can't do it all yourself. Most of the radios you see, most of the radio shows you see out there, most of the larger podcasts you see out there are working with large teams of staff producers and employees and interns that do all of these things. The host shows up, and you know, I'm not saying they're not talented, they're talented at the hosting part and every they have a team of people. Well, if we can get to the else. point where we've got all of that infrastructure, I'm going to feel very talented. Well, yeah, I'm going to be the best show ever. I mean, you must be talented if you have all of that. So, uh, well, have we so, left anything out? Oh, we should remind people to listen every Tuesday and Friday, right? Every Tuesday and Friday. We to come the best of our ability. Yep. We are here every Tuesday and Friday without fail. We've said it again and again, and it's the truth, without fail. Jeremy, so, what else do you have? I, I, uh, we're ready to move on. I'm turn, the I want to turn the show over to you, man. The week. I, I, to move on. You should have the rest of the show. <laughs> I monopolize the entire front end of the show. The rest the of the show is yours. From the China distraction. That's right. <laughs> what did I distract us from, Jeremy? Well, I don't know. Have you seen what's going on right now inside this country? I uh, think uh, there are some big stories this week that are bubbling up now to over sort of drown out the, you know, the indictment. I think there was indictment missiles launched and detonated and now... We have said what other things are coming, and we've seen some of those other things uh, coming, and now they're manifesting into larger uh, narratives. And there was a big one in Tennessee, which is connected to the shooting uh, that was two weeks ago at the Christian school uh, where the kids were gunned down. And uh, did you see the Tennessee uh, State House uh, insurrection? Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't think it was an insurrection, but some people are calling it an insurrection. Well, because now the definition of insurrection has been dumbed down by January 6th. So right. yeah, if exactly. they want that to be an insurrection, then they need to own the label. Yeah, so listen to this one, and this gives a little bit of background, but they they voted some some people out of the legislature in Tennessee, which is evidently unprecedented, even though it has happened before. We begin with the dramatic fallout after that mass shooting at Covenant School in Nashville. Tennessee lawmakers voting to expel three Democrats from the state legislature after they protested for stricter gun control on the floor of that chamber, chanting into a bullhorn, no action, no peace. The Republican Speaker of the House comparing them to January 6th rioters, citing them for disorderly behavior. This morning, supporters of the Capitol welcomed them with cheers and watched in the gallery as the Republican supermajority debated measures to oust them. Since the Covenant shooting, protests for gun control have gathered at the Capitol a number of times, and they were there once again today, even in the rain. Tennessee has only expelled lawmakers a handful of times, and usually for criminal or sexual misconduct. But this time is very different. ABC's Alex Perez is in Nashville. I hereby declare Representative Justin Jones of the 57 Representative District expelled. Tonight, in a rare move, the Tennessee State House deciding if they should expel three Democratic lawmakers who violated decorum during this moment. Tensions rising as two members were expelled, a third saved. The state representative's outrage is stemming from that shooting at a Nashville elementary school. Three staffers and three students killed. With protesters calling for gun reform at the state capitol last Thursday. Democrats Gloria Johnson, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson interrupting the legislative session. I have to raise the voice of the people in my district. And I did what I felt those folks wanted me to do. Speaker of the House Cameron Sexton on a radio show accusing them of trying to incite an insurrection. What they did today was equivalent, at least equivalent, maybe worse, depending on how you look at it, of doing an insurrection in the Capitol. Pearson knocking down that claim. The thousands of children and adults who marched outside of the People's House are not insurrectionists. My walk, my colleagues' walk to the House floor was in a peaceful and... We begin... So, I'm going to agree and say that wasn't an insurrection. But isn't it funny how that's now what we're drawing comparisons to? What do you call it? What was it? I agree with you, of course, but what do you call it? I don't know, a melee, a disruption, a riot. But an in, it wasn't an insurrection to take over the government of Tennessee. I mean, or, or to overthrow the government of Tennessee. It was a publicity stunt. But see, this is what I think is good about that. Let the left go ahead and now defend what is, what is actually an insurrection. Because well, up until now, they've defined it as what, what happened on January 6th. Yeah, and they're still going to define it that way, and they're going to say that this wasn't that. And, in, in, and again, I'm going to agree that January 6th, I'm going to say January 6th was an insurrection, but not the insurrection they reported on the media. Right, I know. It was the insurrection <laughs> going on behind the scenes in which the government was taken over. So I just, it's, it's, it's funny now how how that's where we are. They mention how this is 
you know, unprecedented, and they used some of the examples of people who have been taken out of the uh, assembly previously. One of those that they didn't mention, actually six of them that they didn't mention, were uh, evidently KKK members. <laughs> so, whoops! I, I I thought that was it. Interesting. So they're, so they're so they're so they're working with the clan. Out. Yeah, right. Um, so that was a that would have been uh, just so everybody knows another Republican led effort uh, back in the day. But um, I found some. Uh, I found it interesting because the narrative that's bubbling out, and if you look at the clips, uh, you know the visual clips, it's two young, clearly. Uh, Marxist radical assemblyman that got elected there. They have twenty five Democrats. You can tell they're Marxist by looking at you them. Can, you can tell. You can <laughs> tell by the way they talk. You want to hear? You can tell by the way they use their walk. Yeah, because they're Marxist they, man. Because no time this to talk. one guy. Yeah, this one guy, Justin Jones. He speaks like he's doing a uh, what do they call that like freestyle poetry poetry slam or something yes poetry slam yeah listen to this guy when he's defending himself from being voted out let's talk about expulsion for years one of your colleagues who was an admitted child molester sat in this chamber no expulsion. expulsion. <laughs> oh man, that is such a poetry read. <laughs> of domestic violence. No expulsion. He's preaching. We had a former speaker sit in this chamber who is now under federal investigation. No expulsion. We have a member still under federal investigation. No expulsion. Listen to this. We had a member pee in another member's chair in this chamber. No expulsion. <laughs> what is going on in this? It sounds like there was an expulsion of urine. Yeah. But in the in the governor's administration. And so once again, what you're saying to us, since you're trying to put us on trial, I'll say what you're really putting on trial is the state of Tennessee. What you're really showing for the world is holding up a mirror to a state that is going back to some dark, dark roots. A state in which the Ku Klux Klan was founded is now attempting another power grab by silencing the two youngest black representatives and one of the only women, democratic women in this body. That's what this is about. So it's about silencing these two young black representatives. And I say they're Marxist and you can tell they're Marxists because this was it where they had basically led a mob of people throughout the building chanting. And that was a, one of the mass line narratives they were chanting, which they mentioned in that news report was no action, no peace, uh, a takeoff, I guess, on no justice, no peace. And chanting and marching with megaphones and uh, using these mass line narratives, that is out of Mao's playbook. That's a, a Marxist tactic right there. Um, and they were leading it. 
That, so that's that why keys I, right into where I have I have a segment to close this out called Victims of the Week. This, okay. this all keys right into that. So I agree with you. There, it is. It's, so that's why it's I the, call them Marxists. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't need to hear about their economic philosophy. I can see <laughs> the tactics by which they operate under and employ, and uh, they certain. And then they immediately have spun the whole scenario into the oppression and the system, the systemic oppression against them because they're black. It's funny that um, Gloria Johnson, uh, and this, to me, this looked awfully staged. Um, and I think there was a setup here uh, because Gloria Johnson, who's an older uh, white woman, uh, I think she looks like a woman anyways. She has long blondish hair. She was wearing a, a dress, I think. I'm not sure if she's a she, her woman but she looks like a woman and she a white woman i don't know if she identifies as a white woman but that's what she looks like and so she's in there marching through the through the assembly floor with these two men with their arms raised up and doing their uh solidarity fist of power and she also then is uh there's a motion to expel her from the assembly for this demonstration and she survived oh so they expelled the two black guys and kept the one white woman so they expelled the two black guys and it was a party line vote Straight Republican voting to expel, straight Democrat voting not to. Oh, so there must but have in, been Democrat votes on the other two. But, but in, but in no in in her case, one Republican switched over. Oh. one Republican switched over to make sure. That this looks right. racist. Yes, that's what I thought too. Because Immediately it does. was that this it is does. a setup, and, and right. who's that it, one Republican? He's the Marxist Republican. This looks racist. This looks like these guys were removed because they're black. Yes. Well, let's put it this way: I'm, I'm it, not it, saying that's it looks why like they were she removed. survived because she's white. Right. And but I'm not saying that's why they were removed. And I'm not saying that's why she survived, but I'm saying it looks that way. Very intentionally. And it was was designed to look that way. No question. And that is, you know, what's coming out of this now is the reinforcement of the racism narrative. Well, it's, it's the reinforcement of all. So even before you get to them as victims, and that is what, again, you have to look at all of these, all of every narrative. You need to begin training yourself, ladies and gentlemen, to look at it in terms of who is being conveyed as the victim, who is being conveyed as the oppressor. There is th- This is how you can know it's a Marxist play. There is always the oppressor, there is always the oppressed. And the left is always injecting itself as either the oppressed or the defender of the oppressed. And so that's why they immediately take what is a narrative about a... Uh, a mentally ill, uh, gender dysphoric lunatic who murders three very young children and three adults 
And immediately they reclaim the victim status by being the defenders of the victims of gun violence. And everyone else is cast as being against the victims of gun violence. And then when they go completely crazy and it becomes the next narrative, the next narrative again contains the victim uh, oppressor dynamic, which is that the black voices, the black people are the oppressed and the white people are the oppressors. It's in every narrative. Listen to how quickly Gloria Johnson sold them out, I think. But I can tell you that my voice was no louder than the members having conversations all around this room during the recess. She's like, I was there with them in solidarity, but now she's going to lose her paycheck. <laughs> Very quickly, she's like, I didn't do what they did. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, let's put volume to one side. We saw on the videotape, didn't, did we not, that you were chanting, quote, enough is enough, close quote. Representative Johnson. Um, that's probably true, yes, but it was not yelling, and my voice was no louder than the conversations going on in this room, even occasionally some yelling a little bit across the floor to each other. Um, that was also going on. I stood with my colleagues. I stand with my colleagues. So she she go she goes ahead and and puts herself back in the position of like this esteemed legislator, right? As she lets her two friends that marched into the room with her lose their jobs. Well, they've you know these people have been able to do this on the university campuses where they where they act this way, and then they just go right back to their their either their class or or whatever position they have, and the world goes on. It's they're they're uh, they're they're coddled, and they're surprised that somebody wouldn't coddle them in this situation. Um, I have an interview uh, clip with the good Reverend Al uh, talking to this. Uh, his name is Jones. They both have the same first name. Well, um, the families of the three dead kids must be thrilled that Reverend Al is here to finally bring justice to the situation. So here, here is uh, this one, and I, I find, I found this interview to be pretty interesting uh representative jones reverend al shopton uh uh first let me uh congratulate you and your two colleagues for your courage uh the thing that i'm concerned about that i want you to address is that we don't lose uh focus on the cause and that is that you and your colleagues have made this sacrifice uh around the issue of gun violence next weekend the national rifle association is having its convention in indianapolis at the same time we're having our national action network convention in new york and vice president harris and others will be among other things talking about gun violence we're certainly going to try to have you guys come up the issue of gun violence crosses racial lines because you were protesting at a school that was not an HBCU. This is Covenant School. And these people are insensitive about kids of their own race, nine years old. What has impressed me about the... Yeah, by the way, Reverend, no one went and targeted the black school you're talking about. They targeted the Christian school you're talking about. Protest, and some of us may be joining you Monday, is the intergenerational and interracial uh, uh, aspect of the protest. I saw people of all races and ages out there 
every day standing up, including yesterday. Address the uh, the universal nature of why you're so concerned about gun control and how this is an issue that you become to symbolize, but that goes in everyone's household. Definitely. Well, thank that you become to symbolize, but that goes in everyone's household. Whatever that means. <laughs> but remember, this all stems from a a very unstable, potentially mind-controlled assassin who was a transvestite shooting up kids in a Christian school. You keep saying transvestite. I don't think that that means what you think it means. Maybe I don't think, maybe it doesn't mean what I think it means. But I, my what? understanding was a transvestite was somebody who likes to dress up in the opposite sex clothing, but that was independent of somebody who actually thinks they're a different gender. I don't know. I it to me it's a transvestite. All right. Whether they think they're somebody of the other sex or not, or it's somebody that's a cross dresser. I'm gonna look it up it's on some, chat GPT. You go you go that, on, I'll come back to you with what it is. Yeah, transgender is a is a Marxist terminology that I don't use. No, but that's um, why I say uh, gender dysphoric. Because that's a I think anytime term. you I think anytime you relate you but gender is also something that's made up in the pseudoscience realm that we live hold in. Hold on a second. It's it's sex. Uh, it's hold, male Jeremy, and female. okay, we're going way off course here, but gender. There's male and they're female. The, these are two things Those that exist. Sexes. Yes. Those are two sexes. Okay. So sex dysphoria, whatever. Sex and gender in my mind are interchangeable. Your gender is male or female. There's two. No, your sex is male or female, but I call people who think they're one or the other transvestite cross-dressers. Yeah, I just don't. I, I think that they're, let's see. <laughs> okay, so chat GPT, <laughs> just, to, just to take us off track for just a second. Uh, the term transvestite is generally considered outdated and offensive. It was, pre and how dare you, Jeremy? I know that's important to you. Uh, it was previously used to refer to a person who wears clothing typically associated with the opposite gender for emotional or sexual gratification. However, the preferred term now is cross-dresser, which refers to a person who wears clothing typically associated with the opposite gender for various reasons, including self-expression, personal enjoyment, or cultural or spiritual reasons. It's important to note that cross-dressing is not indicative of a person's gender identity or sexual orientation. I just, okay, well, I say it is. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't care what chat GPT says. I just it said emotional it, reasons. But I just think you need to agree that I'm correct, that the more accurate term you want is someone who is uh, sexually, which is your preference, sexually uh, dysphoric. I think the most accurate term is probably Marxist, or at least useful <laughs> idiot for the Marxists. But regardless, it's somebody that dresses no, I think in the opposite victim. sex's clothing. clothing. It is a, I would say that to some extent, it is a victim, but not in the sense that it would think it's a victim. Uh, there is a... There is a there's a See, now you're using it. <laughs> There's a well, because I don't know what to call it. In this case, it was a woman. And this woman was potentially a victim of 
our culture that is twisting the minds of people to yes. think there's something that they're not. Yes, that's what they are. Uh, they are the victims of this progressive Marxist say, I would system. not agree that she's a victim of oppression. Correct. And getting back to my point, which I don't even remember now, <laughs> You were talking about transvestites. This this all spins from that moment. And so that moment, this is, this is, has become just like the Islamic terror attacks uh, where we didn't identify who the attacker was. And then immediately the narratives shifted to the attacker being a representative for every single person within that identity group being a victim of an oppressive society. Yes. And now we come out in strong defense of that and also now pivot into the attack on the Second Amendment. And so the shock troops are now out in the street. The indoctrinated youth are marching through the streets chanting no action no peace that's the mass line narrative now and the nra uh hey hey ho ho nra has got to go and so now all of this they have their enemies they've got their oppressors right and so so that's where we are with this scenario and they've turned it into a this shooting by this crazy sick person into a huge coordinated attack against the second amendment thank you so much reverend sharpton i mean this issue that drove us to the well was trying to say that we don't want our children gunned down in schools that's what this was about and when we had it wasn't about that it was first about declaring transgenders who i call transvestites to be the victims of this oppressive society and then in order to spin the narrative it became an anti-gun push thousands of young people come to the state capitol last week saying we want to live do you hear us will you do something and my colleagues will not even talk about the issue the house speaker cut off any debate on the issue we couldn't even bring it up he cut off our microphones if we've talked about gun violence um, we went to the well and got in good trouble because we had no other choice or, or alternative Good trouble. Good trouble. This issue, um, I've seen, it's been the largest protest in Nashville in a decade. People from all, it's multiracial, intergenerational, because people are saying that our children are not worth these weapons of war on our streets. Um, You know, we we can pass common sense guns that the majority of Tennesseans support, but rather than an assault weapons ban, they've they've assaulted democracy. I mean, it's my community, I I represented a part of Nashville, and we're still grieving. We're, We're still mourning. We're still grieving. We're still mourning. So we are having this organized protest action in your legislature screaming with megaphones because we're grieving and mourning. Because this is what grieving and mourning people do. They have riots and take over legislative sessions. A week later, we were asking for action, and their first action is not to pass common sense gun laws. It's to expel their colleagues, the two youngest black lawmakers in the state of Tennessee. And that's wrong. Uh, Representative uh, Jones, this is Gene Robinson. What um, is there a possibility? It was raised earlier that you could actually be reappointed uh, to your to your seat, um, and if not, would you run for it again? 
Um, you know, definitely look at legal, legal, you know, I believe that what happened was unconstitutional, challenging it in the courts. Um, we'll look at, you know, going to the ballot box in a special election. This council is also meeting on Monday to appoint an interim. And so the question is, will they seat us? Because, you know, we've heard from the other side that they may not seat us, even if our council appoints it, even if we win a special election, that they won't even allow us to be seated. And so then we'll see another affront to democracy uh, that we saw with Julian Bond, you know, when he was a young man in, in Georgia, when they refused, the legislature refused to seat him. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what to expect from this body, but I hope that the nation sees and it, it, the alarm is, is blaring loud because if it can happen in Tennessee, it can happen anywhere. And they set a very dangerous precedent going forward. This is the first expulsion for First Amendment activity in Tennessee. All other expulsions, the other three over our two over 200 years have been around criminal or unethical behavior. Never so. His I think that last thing he said there is, is to me what stood out. And I've heard I heard him say it in a few different interviews about this setting a dangerous precedent that the alarm bells should be going out to the nation right now that this is setting uh, a a dangerous precedent or that it was ex his exact words i think uh we're entering a dangerous period that they may not seat us, even if our council appoints it, even if we win a special election, that they won't even allow us to be seated. And so then we'll see another affront to democracy uh, that we saw with Julian Bond, you know, when he was a young man in, in Georgia, when they refused, the legislature refused to seat him. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what to expect from this body, but I hope that the nation sees and it, it, the alarm is, is blaring loud because if it can happen in Tennessee, it can happen anywhere. And they set a very dangerous precedent going forward. This is the first. He said dangerous precedent. Then. Yeah, the yeah, because he said the next thing you know, they're start indicting presidents but it's not even what he's doing here i believe it is it co it's it's coordinated with aoc and they and that jamal was it jamal johnson was it or jamal bowman the congressman up in new york the other day that was screaming and right. going nuts yes. at mtg is this is open comms getting everybody ready Probably sometime in May, around May Day. What's May Day, Andrew? May 1st. What is May Day? What is the significance <laughs> of that May the, Day? The celebration of the socialist worker around the world? It is. the. It's, it's basically World Communist Day. It's a world communist holiday um, that... Uh, is when all of the big labor unions and all of the socialist organizations and the Antifa organizations, the anarcho-capitalist groups and the uh, communist groups go out in March in all the cities around the world uh, demanding their revolution. And I think that this is we're, – we're getting close to that and leading up to a period now where we're going to start to see uh, the reviving of more violent actions in the street. And these are the calls to do that. Uh, and, what, and what day is the violent action starting? It's not a coincidence starting? that we're in the spring here okay. coming up May to 1st. that time in May. I'm not saying May 1st. I'm saying that these things are going to culminate around that period of time and everything is bubbling right now with these things going on. You got Fithian up in New York with the arrest Trump push and she's organizing. 
when she goes out there, they're organizing and they're getting ready to do something to put on a big show. Then you've got kids out in the street with no action, no peace, and this going on. And then you've got the corporations putting these transvestites in as their spokespeople now for their products and causing all this friction with the people saying, we don't want that. Okay, we're not going to buy your product anymore. Okay, they don't care. As long as we're creating this friction and animosity and everything's bubbling up to what's going to be some violent times, just like we saw the way BLM built up. What do you think? I think that, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you're right about that. We've seen Fithian out there many times, and we've there have been plenty of times where we thought something was building up and it and it wasn't, and maybe maybe they were trying and they just weren't able to get it going. Uh, I do think that they have to create a infrastructure of being the champions against the victims of gun violence. That way, even when it is one of their own lunatics, which it frequently is, then you don't have to deal with the narrative of what happened to make this person a lunatic. Uh, You just go right to, hey, we champion the victims because, again, everything comes down to oppressor oppressed. Literally everything. There's nothing that escapes it. And so... This is the same thing. They're just creating an infrastructure, an institutional infrastructure by which they are uh, they're the defenders of the oppressed. Is it going to be ratcheted up for maybe what we're used to? Yeah, probably. Probably. I mean, we're heading into you know what is the the crash of the dollar as we've known it. There's, we're heading towards an, a, a period of extreme instability, and that is their playground. Yeah, I wonder how far away from the crisis period we are that uh, Yuri Benzimov was warning about. Um, because there's a lot of things aligning right now in this push. And it's becoming sort of like where COVID was and Trump and impeachment and BLM and you then feel that a wave led, cresting that right that yeah. led to an overthrow of our government right <laughs> and now we're looking at a lot of similar type events going on and now there's another one uh, but summer shifting. always it, it, there's a, there's an increase of this kind of thing always in summer uh, a oh, because for sure. I'll, I'll tell you why for the most part I really think. Is because it's a slow news season because the government is out of session and the and the news media they need those dramatic images, man. That that's why you had Cindy Crawford in Texas all those years ago. She was right up until Congress went back into session. She was front headlines, and as soon as summer was over and Congress was back in session, nobody knew her name anymore. So oh, I, I don't put it past these people at all <laughs> to create riots in the street to feed that news beast. I think it's because it's warmer and it's easier to get more people out. Well, that too. <laughs> that too. Um, but it helps that all of your news crews are idle. So you have that going on, and then you have another attack that was launched uh, this week. Did you see Clarence Thomas now is in this is in the headlines? You want to do Clarence? 
I got a, just two clips on. Oh, on let's this definitely one. do it. Yeah, I did not see that uh, he was in the headlines. I'm too distracted <laughs> by uh, that giant distraction of China. I think the the bigger push here has to do with the Constitution itself, but evidently. Clarence Thomas is a very, very corrupt individual. Firestorm over Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas for accepting luxury travel around the world for more than 20 years, paid for by a GOP donor. Our senior national correspondent, Terry Moran, has more. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Lindsay. Uh, Supreme Court justices are often invited to travel around the world to teach, to attend conferences, to visit with friends. But the lavishness and the frequency of the vacations that Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted as gifts from a powerful friend have no known precedent in recent Supreme Court history. Island hopping on a super yacht in Indonesia, all-male retreats at an exclusive California club, fishing at a private resort in the Adirondacks. You like how they hint at him being a homosexual there? Wait. They sh- they flash what? up they flash up a screen uh he yeah, he said he said uh all-male retreats at exclusive clubs. Did you hear that? I don't know, that, but I'm not sure that that's to say that he's homosexual. It's to say he's exclusive. He's he's misogynist. Maybe, maybe that's it. I I caught it differently because they flash on the screen, Bohemian Grove. Is that a gay thing? No, it's an occult thing, and it's men. It's men only. It's men only. But I just feel like that. You know you've seen them do this, where they shame people for for the same thing that they do. So I just took it that way. I could be wrong, but that's what it seemed to me like they were they were trying to allude to something there. At the very least, they're exposing what is supposed to be a big conspiracy theory of Alex Jones right. about the Bohemian Grove. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is an amazing film, even though it's Alex Jones. If you haven't seen it, I would have to recommend people watch Alex Jones's documentary from 30 years ago about Bohemian Grove, which is a place where very wealthy, powerful people go to this private club and they do all these occult rituals and the bushes go there and all sorts of powerful government officials and corporate uh ceos and it's a very bizarre weird uh, you have to turn over your cell phone you're unplugged for three days solid and i didn't that's that's fascinating that when alex jones was uncovering uh the this event the 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 narrative was it's it's no big deal there's no conspiracy here there's nothing to see this is fine now that they want to vilify somebody it's used as a tool to tarnish them ooh he goes to Bilderberg ooh right. he it's an exclusive event that doesn't include women yeah so anyways I just thought that was funny it's at an exclusive California club fishing at a private resort in the Adirondacks he went fishing at a private resort. <laughs> For more than two decades, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has reportedly enjoyed luxury travel virtually every year, sometimes traveling the world aboard a private jet with a Dallas billionaire Republican megadonor without disclosing any of it to the public. So so he has a personal life. (laughs) Well, I you know, I think there there may be a legitimate concern to be raised, depending on 
what it is. Unfortunately, Terry Moran, uh, the American mainstream media, none of them have any credibility to raise this concern. If they wanted some credibility in this, maybe they would have looked at all of the Supreme Court justices and going back in in time, you know, look at uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I wonder how she traveled. Well, and the thing is, is that evidently there is actually no, there are no rules in the Supreme Court that govern this type of thing. They do not have the same rules and standards that other, that elected officials are obligated to adhere to. But don't they have anything in in there about an appearance of a conflict of interest? Because you could end up with a conflict of interest in that. The only thing they have evidently is that they as a body sort of agree to live to some of this in accordance with some of the same standards that are set for lower courts, but not all of them. And then this would be one of those cases. And and Clarence Thomas said himself, like there there wasn't even a mechanism by which for him to report, report it. this <laughs> yeah. type of of Well uh, maybe there should be kind of stuff. <laughs> Possibly, but here's what I think came out that to me is like, why is this just ties back as another reason why him and why this is going on right now? You got a couple things. You got to attack the Constitution for one. So now the Congress is trying to like pass legislation that can regulate the behavior of, uh, of, you know, Supreme Court justices, which they don't actually have the power to do because. There's a separation of powers. And then in this uh, next report, something else came out that was like, why this and why now? Existing guidelines. Um, and I think Clarence Thomas is alluding to some of that, but it's the travel, it's the flights, it's the cruises that have raised the most concern over two decades here. Clarence Thomas saying he was invited, as we heard from Harlan Crow yesterday, as a personal friend. Um, but certainly the fact that that amount of money from someone so influential uh, was not disclosed is, is, is just another blow to the court's credibility. Um, he's not the only one that has, has you know, failed to disclose certain things over time. That is for sure. Uh, but certainly this is something that has raised a lot of eyebrows legitimately, I think, although now the justice says uh, he will continue and abide by some new rules, which were just enacted uh, a couple weeks ago. Now, Brian, congressional Democrats have been trying to pass legislation for years that would implement an enforceable code of conduct on the nine justices. Senate Democrats are, are now again urging the passage of the Supreme Court Ethics Act. So what would that act actually do? Well, Diane, first we would probably create a, a legal battle because we've heard in the past that Chief Justice Roberts has said that the legislative branch of the United States cannot enact types of laws like this that would be enforceable upon the judicial branch. For the most part, the justices of the Supreme Court have elected to follow the guidelines for the other lower federal justices as to how they will conduct themselves with these these gifts. And when we talk about hospitality or personal gifts, uh, those are keywords or, or buzzwords that are allowed through the loophole of reporting that the Supreme Court justices have chosen to follow. The question becomes is whether or not this can be um, enforced upon the Supreme Court justices, and if they do violate it, then what repercussions could be used? Could it be impeachment or, or, or something to a different degree? 
All right, Brian Buckmeyer, thanks for the legal analysis, as always. Devin, stick around because we have another story we want to cover with you. Uh, Clarence Thomas is now just one of, uh, one of the Supreme Court justices dissenting in a case with potential national implications. The Supreme Court sided with a 12-year-old transgender girl in West Virginia, stopping the state law that tried to ban transgender students from participating in sports consistent with their gender identity. Uh, Devin has been following this story for us. And Devin, just sort of break down this decision for us. How did this all play out? So Clarence Thomas is dissenting in this case, in this uh, case about this girl, I guess it's a girl that or as a boy that wants to compete in the opposite sex's sports. Right. That's a that's a boy that wants to wants to compete against girls. That's right. So the court decides they're not they're just not hearing it right now and they sent it back to the lower court. And Clarence Thomas is the dissenter there. And now, how so, is he dissenting? He wanted to keep it in the in this in the court and rule on it. He didn't want to send it down. Let me see if they played it in the rest of this clip. It's just another minute. Another significant case from the Supreme Court in the past 24 hours, Diane. This is the first time the Supreme Court has weighed in on one of these state bans on trans student athletes. We've been talking about it for months. We've seen a number of states try to take action. And now for the first time, the justices have, have had a say on some of that. This involves uh, a, a law out of the state of West Virginia. Uh, they enacted it a few years ago, banning student athletes, as you said, from participating in the sport consistent with their gender identity. And what the justices said yesterday is they are not going to get involved in that case in West Virginia at this time. Effectively, that means that a lower court hold on the law can continue, meaning it's not in effect in West Virginia. And that's a win for a 12-year-old girl and her family who are challenging the law in West Virginia. She wants to continue to run uh, on her school's middle school track team, uh, which she has been doing for years. She would have been prohibited under the law. So she can continue that. Um, the state, though, is fighting uh, that challenge in court. That challenge will continue. So this is not likely the last time we'll hear from the Supreme Court on this. Just means for now, they're going to take a back seat as the challenges play out. All right, Devin Dwyer, thank So it's not clear. Maybe they wanted, maybe. Well, so how are they connected, though? How is the first part of this connected to the second part? They, they're painted, well, they paint him as the, because this is a, this is a victory for the trans uh, student. You follow me? They're painting so they, it that way. Right. They call Thomas the dissenter. Yeah, they paint here. him as the oppressor of the trans so student. Painting him as the oppressor of the trans student, which is leading to a big push to impeach Clarence Thomas. It's to me. It's See, that's connected a huge by distraction. That's a huge me, distraction. To me, it's connected by timing. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. It, to I, me, it's connected by timing because of all of the other incidents around this topic going around. Now you bring out this, like, who cares about Clarence Thomas? You know, vacations or whatever tying but tying how can into, they how can they how can they impeach him while they're defending these two guys down in tennessee <laughs> how can they do AOC, that they're gonna impeach AOC. the black guy on the court are you kidding me aoc is gonna do it 
Uh, yeah, the, Maybe. I, she yeah, might do it. I, I see. Listen, I, to me, I think she, it's just a, gi- a big, giant distraction narrative for them. You might be right, because listen to her. I want to start with some breaking news. Just before we're talking today, ProPublica breaks open the story of Clarence Thomas accepting luxury private jet and yacht trips from a billionaire Republican donor. It sounds like something uh, out of a cartoon, a caricature of corruption. It's a story that seems to encapsulate all of the Supreme Court corruption that everyone kind of senses, but now it's like right out in the open. And and you're calling for Clarence Thomas's impeachment. So the first question I have is, are you going to draft those articles of impeachment? And do you expect to have the support of many, if not most of the House Democratic Caucus? I mean, listen, I think this is an emergency. Um, I think that this is a crisis. I think we've had a crisis for some time. (laughs) This is an emergency and a crisis. Uh, On the Supreme Court and you know, so in, in to, to get to the heart of your question, uh, we Congress is out of session for the next week. Um, so, and so that does give Democrats um, sometimes some time to strategize. And the way I feel about it is that the, I do think articles need to be introduced. If we decide strategically that the actual author of those articles and, and who introduces them may not be me, that's fine. I will support impeachment. But I just think that if no one's going to introduce it, I, I would certainly be open to doing so and drafting them myself. I, I think you're right. Total distraction. And She's let me tell like, you also, why, you know why I really feel weeks. like it? Jeremy, it's an emergency. We're out of session for a few weeks, so nothing can happen anyways. <laughs> right. It's, so it's, let's get garbage. it in the news now. Jeremy, listen, the, the, can't you just imagine whoever wrote that first report for Terry Moran, whoever in that shop who wrote that report, they're handed the assignment that, oh, the, the Supreme Court is instituting new rules. Okay, well, we got to come up with a, with a reason to attach to why they're doing it. Oh, look, perfect. Let's find some way to vilify <laughs> one of the Republicans. Perfect. They, they, they could have taken this story and said, oh, yeah, they're instituting new rules. And they're kind of concerned about things like what Clarence Thomas is doing and, and some of these other ones in the past. No, no. They take what is a, an obvious story that the Supreme Court instituted some new rules and they w- immediately weaponize it. Yep. I think you're right. Yeah. Wow, you poor Clarence. See how they just they won't leave him alone. It all together, you know, how it's all threaded into the narratives. Yeah. And you're by, right. By tying it into the trans thing. And, you know, yeah. that you can just get. So now we can. This, this can be part of no action, no peace. You know, distraction or no distraction, it's part of a line of effort. Mm. Uh, so. Wow. Yeah, I think you're right. It is very coordinated. And it'll serve them well. And it'll be perfect over the summer because the board media will definitely carry it. They'll be looking for anything. Do you have anything else from that? That was it. Let's finish up real quick. Uh, We're going to go to four hours today. (laughs) So the next (laughs) hour and 10 minutes is going to be this last segment. (laughs) I'm calling this the victim of the week. And the point of this is to, again, get people thinking about these narratives where there, in each one of them, there's always the victim. There's the oppressor and the oppressed. Now, just in this first one, 
I just want, you know, clearly the most oppressed group in the world are ladies. The search for a superintendent in East Hampton is now gaining international attention after one candidate said his offer was taken back for using the term ladies. 22 News reporter Kate Wilkinson is live outside City Hall where a protest is about to start. Dozens of protesters have come out tonight and you can see them all right behind me holding up these signs. You can see even some are saying the word itself ladies in those signs. There are dozens out here tonight from all over. I've seen people from West Springfield to Westfield to Northampton, speaking out and saying that they're frustrated with how the school committee handled this. Dr. Perone was sent his contract and in replying to that email, he said there were parts he wanted to negotiate. But after the school committee went to executive session, he was told the committee rescinded the offer for using the term ladies because it's a microaggression. The president of the East Hampton Education Association said that vote should not have happened in executive session. We're not quite clear, like, which committee members changed their votes? Did all committee members change their votes? We have some mistrust in the process. After his story gained international attention, Perone told 22 News, can we bring people together and have a conversation and have a teachable moment? Adding, that's a starting point. But when something happens and we just slam the door, it's an ending and it just causes further divisiveness. And it's a problem. Ladies. And being uh, pulled over by microaggressions. If you, if a micro, if you actually think that you have been the victim of a microaggression, the problem is you have a micro brain and micro thin skin. But just reinforcing, ladies are the victim. Women are the victim constantly. And I don't know if you noticed, but in that news segment, no one. The, the narrative of that news segment is this is insane. Ladies isn't a a, a microaggression or any kind of aggression. Uh, it's that they did this behind closed doors. <laughs> that they rescinded <laughs> the offer. Nobody knows who did it. No. Yeah, that's part of the problem. <laughs> the, the real problem is that this notion that using the term ladies, he's asking for a teachable moment. The teachable moment should be to teach them that they're a bunch of morons. Are they allowed to say gentlemen? Of course. Because men aren't victims ever. You can call them anything you want. They, they're toxic masculinity. All right, so moving right along. This is the, and again, this relates to what you were saying with, and with, your, with your story out of Nashville, because they immediately, they have to, they cannot have the shooter be the oppressor. The shooter has to be a part of a victim class. The victim class must be reinforced because the left is always the protector and vanguard of the uh, of of the victim and and everyone else is uh, the victimizer. This has been one of the worst weeks for of 2023 so far in terms of anti-LGBTQ bills becoming law in states across America. Three anti-LGBTQ laws have been enacted so far this week in Kansas, Indiana, and Idaho. Just yesterday, the North Dakota Senate passed 10 anti-LGBTQ bills in just one day, a single day record. In Kansas, the state legislation overrode Governor Kelly's veto to make Kansas the 20th state that has banned transgender kids from participating in schools, sports. 
With the enactment of a new law in Indiana, 14 states have now banned gender-affirming health care while some of these laws are currently blocked by courts. This is a dangerous, a dangerous attack on the rights of parents to make the best health care decisions for their own kids. According to the Human Rights Campaign, more than 50% of transgender youth in the U.S., which is estimated to be more than 150,000 kids, live in states in which transgender youth have lost access to or at risk of losing access to gender-affirming care. Look, this is awful news. Let's be very clear about that. LGBTQI plus kids are resilient. I love that. That's a mouthful, even for her. <laughs> LGBTQ plus I. That. LGBTQI plus kids are resilient. They are fierce. They fight back. They're not going anywhere. Actually, quite the opposite. They're mentally ill and totally impressionable uh, at the hands of lunatics like the left. And we have their back. This administration has their back. See, they're the victims and the left are the heroes protecting the victims. We are so proud of the kids across this country who have organized protests and school walkouts to tell the politicians in their states to stop this legislative bullying. So, uh, yeah, wanting to protect children from gender mutilation uh, and chemical castration, that is bullying. <laughs> Wait, I just want to real quick play, which states did she tell me to move to? Hold on. State that has banned is the 20th state. In Kansas, the state... Kansas, okay. Yeah. Remind me to call my realtor. Legislation overrode Governor Kelly's veto to make Kansas the 20th state that has banned transgender kids from participating in schools, sports. With the enactment of a new law in Indiana... Are they banned from participating... Are they banned from participating in school sports or banned from participating in school sports in the opposite sex well, of course don't uh, jeremy stop that <laughs> you're disrupting the narrative jeremy <laughs> <laughs> yes of course so just keep your eye out for who's the victim always in every one of these narratives there is a victim and just remember you are the oppressor Coming in at just under three hours, Jeremy. It's been a marathon of a show, and let me tell you something. I bumped a segment. I have a segment uh, with Matt Walsh, who gave an amazing speech at a Young America, Young Americans for Freedom Foundation event, YAF, uh, on the transgender issue. It's absolutely brilliant. And we're going to bump it. We're playing it next time. Just not, we're not going over three hours, Jeremy. No. Not today, anyway. It might just be you and me right now. If anybody is listening right now, please uh, send us an email, truth at truthbait.com, with some sort of a code word. What code word should we have for people? <laughs> the code word is White House Press Secretary. White House press secretary. I think that's three code words in one. Three code words. The code phrase is four. It's four. It's White four House. You're right. White House press word. secretary. That's four. 
Oh, all right. There will Listen. be a prize if you email truth at truthbait.com with the subject line White House press secretary you will receive a prize you'll be the executive producer of episode 15 and to get another prize there will be another prize some some kind of prize i don't know jeremy's gonna send you eggs and honey (laughs) maybe just (laughs) eggs listen every tuesday and every friday we bring you an episode every tuesday and friday without fail to the best of our ability. That's the first time in three episodes I've gotten that one right. I'm re-improving, Jeremy. Thank you, you to all of our listeners who made it this long, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of value for a three-hour podcast. I know some people that listen that long. And now... Back to the sea of clickbait with you all.